this is another experiment of of three of us meeting um, now that the hurly burly's done uh, <laughs> to discuss some topics. Uh, we are bringing in Katarina. Uh, I'm going to hand it over to you. Can you uh, just say hi at first and say your name and go from there? Sure. Uh, my name is Katarina Pejevic. Happy to be here. Um, I am a PhD student at the University of Toronto. I also um, write a lot about um, Balkan folk magic. I'm from Serbia originally. Um, and necromancy and the witchcraft and various uh, spirits and traditions that come from the former Yugoslavia as well as just the Balkans in general. Um, and yeah, many of the things that I like to talk about in general uh, involve sort of oral lineages of folk myths and stories and the way that they're handed down and preserved and changed over time. So I'm very fascinated just by the transmission of breath to words and into text. There are cases that do get codified, which um, did happen in some cases in Serbia, especially through Vuk Karadzic, who I'm sure we'll touch on at some point. But yeah, I'm very excited to be here and just to talk a lot about um, all the lovely things we have planned. It's really nice to have you on the show. Okay. Um, it's a shame, right? That was like so much more professional than we normally are. <laughs> <laughs> when are you going to grow up, Al? Um, uh, never. You know, <laughs> yeah. well, you, when you go to conferences and stuff at universities, like you get used to just giving a quick spiel. Um, but it's also just terrifying because I hate talking about myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily we get to talk about the things that we find interesting rather than literally ourselves, uh, which is yeah, always, always my we thought might be interesting a few months back when we made topic lists. <laughs> <laughs> well, that too, that too. Yeah. Um, what is, what did we set ourselves as homework? Oh dear Lord. Um, okay. Um, this is Radio Free Golgotha because I, I don't believe we've hashtagged ourselves yet. No. Uh, so welcome to Radio Free Golgotha. This is Jesse and Al and Katarina. Um, what Hiya. are you today, Al? Uh, today we are here to talk about a very particular uh, saint or kind of saint, I suppose we could say, um, which I'll leave you to talk about more uh, in a second. But in terms of Sesame Streeting our syllabus before us this evening, we have a uh, discussion of the demon Aglirept or many of the other ways that that can be said. Uh, and maybe we can... Uh, Try and find the, the the weirdest one, and their counterparting issue of Kimbanda, uh, Salvi issue Mangera. Uh, we're also here to talk about the plant Datura, uh, the stone the Bezua. Uh, hopefully, a discussion around uh, the type of magics of sorcery, and we have I've written down here sorcery versus witchcraft, uh, which sounds like quite the battle royale, uh, but certainly compare and contrast, um, show and tell on sorceress versus witchcrafty modalities of practice in general. Uh, also, this episode is brought to you by the geomantic figure of Conjunctio and, of course, then the Odu of Uwari. Latin, Jehovah begins with an I, Al. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which Latin? Um, is it your church Latin? It's, well, is, it, is it the Latin that was shoved down people's throats that had nothing to do with the Latin that was spoken? Uh, is it? Uh, is it really? That is not really. <laughs> for a lot of history. Um, as evidenced by linguistic shift as opposed to church Latin, which was invented in the 1860s. So mm-hmm. history before you start throwing stones. It's just, it's just <laughs> people like to change vowels and then pretend that other languages don't know what they're talking about. Before I start throwing bezoas. You know, that that I don't care about. <laughs> they're quite rare. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> at mean, least expensive. Basically a bezoar, but, um, mm-hmm. uh, but much less expensive. Oh, yeah, we're also talking about the Hanged Man for our Major Arcana. And, ooh, this is exciting for our uh, uh, magical forebear of the, uh, of, the, of, the, of the session, is the Witch of Endor. 
So I'll be diving into the first book of uh, Samuel a little bit as well. Love you, Wax. Mm-hmm. But first and perhaps most importantly, um, Jesse, tell us about the Feast of the Holy Relics. Okay, so I mean, we haven't even mentioned what it is, uh, that that's what we're doing. But uh, yeah, so <laughs> I, I propose that this discussion on the Feast of Holy Relics happened because uh, it's an interesting... Uh, I don't often come with notes, and I have nine pages of notes. The rest of um, on things I find interesting about this feast day because it has no actual fixed date. Mm-hmm. Um, it's celebrated as early as October 26th and goes through usually like mid-November, November 14th, 15th. It's it's generally agreed upon. Most celebrated date is November 5th, but it is felt to be important to be celebrated within the octave, the eight days of all saints, all souls. Mm-hmm. Holy Relics celebrates the fact that saints' bones and body parts are things that we can get to God through. <laughs> Um, that is the official CCD. Um, no, but that the idea that physical objects left by those people who died in a state of grace then allow us to participate in that grace in some way or on a very mundane level, have a better telephone communication with God. Mm. And, and that idea of relics has been hotly contested, especially by well, the Protestant Reformation and forward. And there's lesser reliance on relics and this tangible connection to history um, as the Protestant Reformation starts to take hold. Mm. And I find that interesting because of the, 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 the idea that the, the Reformation was the start of the death of miracle and the, the last bastion of magic. Magic started to die after this point. Whether that's true or not, I, I, I don't think it is, but I think that the public perception of it and certainly a shift that coincides with the industrial revolution. And by the time we get to that, it's, it's, it's a different mindset. Oh yeah. But that, uh, the idea of relics themselves and, and the historicity of Jesus, which is always a contested issue, Mm -hmm. uh, that even Paul as a major father of the church, never met the historical Jesus and was, you know, met the, the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. Mm. And Damascus, I God, I hope that's right. Um, I'm gonna get beat by some nun, nun relic. After this. I think so. Um, but uh, also that the historicity of the gospel is also what gives the church its authority, right? And this is an interesting thing because the minute you can say that it's Peter that was the spiritual successor to Jesus, and that the the Roman Catholic Church founds its authority based upon its descendants from Peter. Mm-hmm. Um, genealogy from Peter and the laying on of hands from those apostles, it it changes this into a very tangible history that is not unlike what is proposed in 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 Judaism of like the lists of being able to name your ancestors back to one of the biblical lists that then takes you back to Adam and therefore God. Right. So the relics are an interesting segue into that. There's many other pro- subjects they bring up for me, um, but I love this idea that there's all saints. There's all souls. And then in the further celebration of that mystery, not just their heavenly uh, acceptance into heaven as, you know, this, this split theology that starts to happen of are, are people already resurrected in a mm. timeline? Because right. the medieval mind was that there was a judgment day. It's the tarot card of the judgment, right? At some point, the tombs will open. And this is when people are resurrected, but not right. until that point. Right. So there's this thing that the saints are already in heaven as the elect because we have evidence of this from performing miracles. Yes. So their, their state of grace is such that they are assumed spirit-wise, not necessarily bodily, into heaven. And this is, um, you know, as we talked about the Assumption of Mary and her being bodily assumed into heaven, there's this side of it that there's this future promise of the New Jerusalem, of, of the physical 
um, paradise mm-hmm. that the saints are already participating in. This promise of resurrection is already fulfilled for them, at least in spirit. Um, certainly not in body because we're keeping their bodies captive and that'd be really weird for them to be. <laughs> Which I also find the concept of saint relics quite fascinating from a necromantic point of view, especially Mediterranean necromancy, which would be to, if you have unburied bones, they are creating restless dead. Yeah. And so this idea of even, this is um, a concept sometimes referred to as forcing the saint by me um, in my own head. <laughs> uh, I don't remember the proper Spanish term for it. There is one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the idea that there's, there's an argument of like, is this really Jesus's foreskin? Um, is this really you know, St. Lucy's skull? Right. Um, even if it isn't, the dead person that it is has no rest unless you get them to perform miracles for you and then you give them a mass or you give them flowers or you give them some sense of rest through the sacrifice of the mass in getting that, that bone to perform miracles. Now, is it the same thing as having a, a direct physical link to the actual saint that you're venerating? No, but there we know that there are, what, three skulls of Mary Magdalene in France alone. Right. Um, and things broaden out from there. Now, unless she was tricephalic, which would be awesome. Um, <laughs> it, she is the original Hecate. Um, uh-huh. Or at least her chosen on Earth. Uh, this is going into a tangent that I don't think I intended. Um, but uh, <laughs> Heresy! Yeah. So, which, which I think this whole concept of what this is, I mean, the... the 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 other thing that I like about the Feast of the Holy Relics is it it really lets us dive into how ritual can be created because mm-hmm. it's um it's exemplar in the Missal. Uh, it doesn't it has original prayers that are unique to it, but those aren't really hard to write. You just have to speak excuse me write Latin um, because you know we won't be able to pronounce it like the Brits who pronounce everything correctly. Um, but thank you. Um, you. You did invent all languages. Um, yes, uh, especially uh, Enochian. Flips table of practice. Yes. Um, <laughs> where are you going to get your sweet wood now, Al? <laughs> so uh, that that in the structure of the of the day itself, that it shows us how ritual can be created and therefore make something new. Where the introit is actually from the one of the feasts of Saint Peter and Paul. Uh, that is the Lord keepeth all their bones and out of them will the Lord deliver them. Um, mm. that, he, that the epistle um, is, uh, no, the, the introit is actually the feast of, of, of John and Paul. Sorry, my notes okay. are scribble. Um, but then the, the epistle is from uh, Peter and Paul who were the first um, among the uh, foundational relics that the, the Pope built churches over. Um, and then also what's interesting about John and Paul is that they were the first martyrs buried in a church in Rome. So this is a cultural thing of like who are the first major relics that we can look back to um, and the biblical verses of like um, their bodies are buried in peace and their name liveth in, from generation unto generation. Mm-hmm. So this playing on like the, the sanctity of the bones in that way, um, playing on the pros- the promise of resurrection. Mm-hmm. And then the gospel is from the vigil of all saints. So it's referencing something that just happened to kind of give it one last boost. Mm-hmm. And chants that are used in the mass, there's no Gregorian chant that's unique to it. And there's no, um, in the scriptures we, I just talked about, but that the various chants and both Gregorian and otherwise are, are piecemealed from the feasts of various early martyrs. So that they all kind of go in there and swirl it around. That's fascinating. Yeah, like it, it shows an example of how effective ritual can be done when you're trying to do work with a concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I find it fascinating. Um, uh, you guys know Nathan. Uh, down in Nola, he was just sent me these pictures of uh, he was in the the cathedral 
of mm-hmm. St. Louis, and they asked him if he wanted to see the relics. And their relics are kept in a specific case that has its own triptych. And there's beautiful just St. Relics displayed in a certain way that many of the old, especially French and Spanish churches, have an area where there's just, we don't even necessarily know, we just know this was some saint. Yeah. Um, it's from a grave, a giant grave of saints that was found. And mm-hmm. this adoration of the bones into complex geometrical shapes and um, the kind of adoration of relics in that way as a force of godhood, like a, a wall of God staring at you that is yeah. different from the the physical um, transubstantiation, the, the host, which is a, a product of transubstantiation as the body of Christ. Mm. And for Catholics and and um, high, high prots, that is still considered the the... the, the the indwelling presence of God on earth because we don't have the, you know, the, the ark is in Ethiopia. So we don't have that to go off of anymore. Right. It's transient, right? The hosts doesn't stay the hosts. Uh, if you, if you don't, if it's not blessed and, and consumed by someone in the communion of the saints, right? It can be held in the tabernacle hmm. and in a monstrance. So those are different things that you can, you can display it, but different dogmas and different um, denominations will have different beliefs. Right. The other thing that, and and this is why this, I'm sorry, there's so much that's interesting to me about this. Um, <laughs> uh, feel free to be like, slow down. Um, but uh, it also brings up the concept of translation of relics that mm-hmm. is celebrated and not just the death day of a saint. Right. So oftentimes a local church, some of the major feast days that we think of have nothing to do with the death day of the saint, which is just the most common feast day of the saint within a day yeah. or two of the death. Mm-hmm. But for instance, Walpurgis Nacht, isn't her day. Her feast day is February 25th. That's the day of her death. Why do we celebrate? Well, or just not. Well, this is the day of her canonization and the translation of her relics, which were then installed in um, Eichstatt. Eichstatt? I can't pronounce German at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but th- this translation, the moving of the bones, which plays into my own lovely adoration of that, that night as something of very significant. Is we're not celebrating death. We're celebrating the flight of the bones, the bones that are then exhumed from one place and enshrined in another in full glorification. Right, right. Which is also crucially usually about the, or often about the prestige or the grace or the glory or the straight up economic benefit uh, from becoming a a, a pilgrim hub of the bones turning up. So there's a wider sense of like why you would celebrate these turning up at these times, the the time that our church came into itself as as possessing these things. Yeah, certainly um, I think in Paris, um, there is the, I think it's like December 3rd or 4th, they have a, a day that is specifically the the reception of the relics, like when mm. a major relic caravan arrived right. uh, that had like thrown a cra- or cra- crown of thorns and some strands of the Virgin Mary's hair and other things. So like, it's this interesting thing of like, when does our, our it, it, it validates the spirit body of the church by giving a physical body as well, mm. which is perhaps why in addition to the, the the shadow side of the church being a political um, entity that has mm-hmm. property, that it also does bring some spiritual validation for that, or perhaps spiritual bypassing, I'm not sure which one, of demanding that there be a foundation of the church that's built upon relics, built upon this connection to the past. Right. And so, yeah, to, to, to reiterate then, the, the Feast of the Holy Relics may have begun uh, over some specific relics, but like all souls and all saints, it it it, it is about the it's 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 one of those catch-all ones, right? It's it's a Milokan kind of take. Yeah, it does um, it all. And it it's I mean, November fifth is highly celebrated because there's a lot of martyrs that died on that day, so it became kind of like, oh, this is a prominent possibility within there. But 
it's it's obviously at this time of year where we're looking forward into the the darkness to come mm. and what that is the promise of and the hope of resurrection is there i also think it brings up the whole question of what a relic is to begin with in addition to yes we're talking about like restless dead and necromancy and things like that which are things that i know you and i've talked about i'm not sure how much heretical orangutan poop i'm gonna get thrown at me from that. <laughs> um, but um the idea of a first class relic being a physical part of the saint or something associated with christ so christ because we don't have the physical body of christ um mm-hmm. i mean we would never say that um even if we do um <laughs> but uh the idea that uh the 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 bones that will be pieced together voltron like um at the resurrection are dispersed the fingernails the hair the things like this that are of the body and then there's second class which is most usually something they touched um the clothing the ex um, i think it's indumentis relics um is replying to his clothing that they wore mm-hmm. um or their particular psalter or things like that um, the third class relics are things that touched a first or a second class relic. And there are people that talk about a fourth class relic being something that's touched one of the other relics. So then the, the third class is the ex brand as the, which is refers most heavily to cloth. So clothing that had touched a tomb that you could then scrap, you could cut that entire thing you were wearing that day. If that's what you visited the tomb of a saint in and mm-hmm. sell those as relics. Well, not sell. You would get donations for those things. Um, and this is what you commonly see where, um, like I have a friend who, his habitually goes to holy sites and takes a bolt of red cloth with them and touches the bolt of red cloth to it and then has relics for all of us. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, to be that traveler. Um, <laughs> so I, I find all that really fascinating. And um, in current event wise, I saw this article going around uh, that talks about the sour toe cocktail. You know about that? Yes. Yes. Try shared it with me. Yeah, so the, the Saratoga cocktail was in, in Yukon in Canada, and he found a frostbitten toe yeah. and put it in alcohol and started serving it. And uh, was really sad just about the fact that there's just toe, this toe that's separated from somebody's body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, a whiskey from a glass that contains some of this pickled human toe. Now the guy who it started that is, when he dies, going to donate his toes to keep the tradition going. Yeah made an interesting side of it because then it made me question like, well, the drink is technically a relic, but is it first class or second class? Because it's something that's touched the relic, but then by science, we know that the whiskey is absorbing part of that relic. Should mm-hmm. so, saints or tinctured relics at least become something of interest? Um, it brings up a lot of fascinating things with like early Christianity and the way that like these martyrs who are like early saints, people would go into their tombs and try and like take the oil from the lamps and like rub it on themselves or like mm-hmm. get away with sneaking pieces of, you know, the saints or martyr matter's body home with them. Just the idea that like this person died and was able to go to heaven and had this like virtuous sort of afterlife. And and if I have a piece of it on me or if I rub it on my skin, like it'll transfer to me and lead me to that uh, same fate. I was reading about how we find the tradition of even um, what gets called Peter Stone a lot of the time, at least in the British Isles, of even chipping off um, bits of uh, poking out bits of statuary of saints as well. That even the there's there's a there's a likeness thing going on there, a, a similitude of it's in their tomb and it's and it's of their likeness, and so we'll chip it off and grind it down and use it for anything from protecting our cattle to to curing kids to uh, you know more explicitly. Um, devotional practices as well. Yeah, it's it's very common with wooden statues uh, to be able to get a sliver. Mm-hmm. And also because uh, it's easy to break off. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah well, well they, they were talking about uh, noses uh, was done a lot which is also obviously you know something that many of the Protestant iconoclasts were also doing but that is interesting to think that you know, when you look at, uh, you know, a medieval statue and it's, it's you know, it's battered around the edges and, and part, you know, fingers have uh, come off and, 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 and chins and, and noses and things, that might not be because someone was trying to, you know, desecrate it or, or destroy it. It, w- it may have come from uh, an incredibly devout but desperate uh, person. Yeah, the nose thing is interesting because I w- I'd love to read more on that because it, it, it brings to mind what was directly done during the conquest of the New World where native idols' hands uh, and just like genitals being removed from from classic from classical statues in Europe, right? You know, removing hands, feet, uh, demarcating the face, removing the ears of a deity, removing mm-hmm. the nose because the the Christian belief that the soul exits and enters through the nose, right? Uh, so there's this I this this the breath of God is put in through that area, not through the mouth. It's not he's not giving you CPR. He's I guess mouth tonguing, mouth kissing you, <laughs> nose kissing you something um, when he gives rude. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a form of kiss, um, <laughs> truly. Um, open kisses, I think they're called, uh, something like that. But yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, the you see recipes for powerful drinks in uh, different Afro Caribbean, Afro Brazilian traditions. They call for this the shard of a saint statue, meaning a wood statue. So I think oh, it's the, the wood in, is then saturated with the incense, with the prayers of everybody in it, and everything like right. that. Feel a part of that with the feast day as a physical token of the saint. Is mm-hmm. it in fact a a form of relic? Um, yeah. I suppose you could go through contagion and be like, well, it touched the stone, that touched the wood, that touched the stone, that touched the altar, that touched the relic. So it's right. like a third class relic, right? <laughs> yeah, third class get um, not tricky. Uh, get, gets a very broad category when you start to think like that, right? Yeah, and I think that's why people unofficially refer to things as fourth class relics. Yeah. Uh, It'd be like, eh, that's not, you know, how many degrees of separation between you and God? <laughs> uh, well, you know, if you're a Catholic, could be many. If you're Protestant, apparently none. So, you know, one point for the Protestants. <laughs> so it's been it's been a while since I read Peter Brown's uh, Cult of the Saints. But, uh, you know, having a, a resident uh, theologian here, or at least someone with some 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 formal theology training. Kat, what's your take on this notion that far from being an extension of pagan uh, hero um, elevation, that this early Christian necromancy was kind of more marked by contrast to those pagan practices than a continuation or development on. I think it's fascinating because on the one hand, like I can see how these practices can be regarded as being in, in, in that kind of tension, but intention always breeds conversation. And mm. especially with the risk of new Christians going back to paganism, going back to uh, the the risk of Neoplatonism coming as this kind of rising, its newest form at the time as a rising star that could, you know, sway people over back to like their usual practices, but now you also get salvation, you know, <laughs> and so on and so forth. Right. So it's, um, but there's something very fascinating about the way that saints come into it and the way that the relics especially come into it, because it's different than the way that Neoplatonists conceive of, you know, the ascent to godhood or like catching right. the train of these deities that are circling, right. The theurgy aspect of it, where you, mm-hmm. know, you um, end up progressing higher and higher to the spheres of your chosen deity. And getting absorbed mm. in that current. Although there is something similar going on, right? Like if I can have the physical remains of the saint on me, if I can rub the oil from the martyr's lamps on my skin, that'll help me closer to, in a way, his train, the way that the saint is moving 
uh, my soul's ascent here. Ah. Very deeply, I think, um, death based in it. That's not the case in, in other competitors, right? Is that, um, I forget who it was exactly. You'll have to forgive me, but there's, there was this Roman, um, like, uh, judge. And a few Roman judges actually were talking about this, but there's this one letter I recall reading where he was getting very frustrated because he would have all these Christians coming up to him and um, basically asking for a death penalty. So they'd be like, oh, you know, like I did, look, I'm a Christian. I'm not repenting of that. You know, I'm not, well, it's not even a matter of belief. It was more they weren't sacrificing to the emperor, right? So you'd right. be like, hey, I'm not actually um, doing all these things I'm supposed to be doing to be a Roman citizen. I'm uh, all weird and antisocial, not to mention <laughs> that I refuse to, you know, participate in these public festivals or bring honors to the emperor. I won't even burn incense for him. There was a whole controversy with like, you know, were they... Um, uh, maybe you can pay off the guy who checks your name off the list to see if hmm. you're actually, you've given the offering to the emperor. And then some Christians were saying, no, that's still falling into sin because then you're acknowledging the authority. You have to go all the way and hmm. uh, completely um, abstain from the practice, not even acknowledge uh, that it exists, you know, or it's right. authority over you. And so, you know, at the end of the day, I think from the records that we have, most Christians at the time did end up either, either giving the offering or actually getting their names checked off and paying the guy off because, yeah, yeah. you know, it would throw you in jail otherwise because the emperors were trying to um, figure out, you know, these Christians seem to be this big political enemy, so we got to get rid of them, you know, or at least figure out who they are and, and make sure that they come on their line. And they can have their weird little cults where they eat their own God and they call each other brother and sister and kiss each other, Ugh, you know, but <laughs> they do need to actually, you know, know who's in charge here. And yeah. so despite all of that, you had these people who were kind of eager for martyrdom. They were coming forward and they were saying, hey, I'm ready you know, like basically come at me. And they're, and, and oftentimes they'd be turned back. They'd be like, no, like there was this one, I wish I knew his name. There's this one Roman judge who was like, no, actually like this, you're clearly <laughs> wanting to die because I know what happens to you people when you die. People <laughs> love your bones and suddenly you're this hero. And, and, and then it encourages more of you weird suicidal people like, go away, you know? And they kept coming back. And eventually this, this judge was writing to another judge saying, my hands are tied. I'm going to execute this person, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so this uh, longing for this death is, you know, you have to understand the historical context is people were thinking that the, you know, the second coming is any moment now. It could be. Right. And, and you're, you will not, um, you will likely experience it in your lifetime. And the further away it, it came to be, people got more anxious about it, you know, and then it became what happens when uh, the children of these people don't remember the memory of the initial movement and so on and so there's this sense of urgency right you know we could get you know tortured or captured at any moment right but if we uh, face that doom with and this is not like a you know a calm philosophical sort of yes i understand there's a lot of risks and death and there's a possibility mm. of reincarnating into something that i'd rather not be but you know i get to do my contemplation and eventually you know move up the spheres myself, you know, you get this intense urgency, like you, I could really die an awful death, you know, right. soon rather than later. And um, I really hope that either I can be a light for future people or because touching the relics somehow made me want to have that experience myself and be um, myself like a, a martyr and so on. So this interesting, I, I find it really fascinating on these early texts about martyrs and how gung-ho a lot of them were about uh, becoming martyrs, you know, and people, um, early martyrdom stories like Polycarp becoming these fantastic tales that mimic the, you know, the death of Christ, you know, the fact mm. that he cannot be burned. Um, he gets pierced with a lance on his side and, and his blood flows out like a fountain and ends up um, putting out the flames. And he finally, like, after all this torture days endured and nothing seems to wound him, kind of like, you know, our favorite Supreme Justina in the Cauldron, he looks up and he's like, I'm ready now, you know, and <laughs> here's, you know, the Lord's voice being like, you know, um, come, you know, telling him to come forth. So it's this whole um, sense of urgency. It's the sense of like um, transcendence through death of, uh, but also 
weirdly, I mean, the necromantic angle of it is so fascinating to me that, you know, torturing saints and, and agitating their bones so they can't really rest. They, they have to stick around and be these intercessors for us, right? You know? Right. At the same time, people wanting that that ending for themselves, wanting to kind of uh, be one of the dominoes in, in, in the falling line of getting other people to salvation mm. in a time when apocalypse is coming at any moment. I love that notion of the uh, of, of, of what we're doing is we're kind of riding on the saints' coattails. Mm-hmm. As they like rocket to, through the spheres themselves, and yet you know they're here, right? You know we're agitating their bones, and you know on some level that they they are forced to kind of remain as at these crossroads figures for us. Yeah, that these Christian uh, works of thaumaturgy become a kind of um, that they're, they're powered by a dynamo that has these restless dead running on it, like they're 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 riding the uh, you know the the the, the spectral necromantic um, bicycles hooked up to the generator. Which can be like, terrifying, I guess, as, as a state of being. But at the same time, like all of these gung-ho would-be martyrs, you know, hoping to become proto-saints, you know, themselves. There's yeah. a sense of like, but it's coming so soon, right? You know, the mm. uh, Jesus coming back so soon. And there's a risk. There's always this anxiety. More and more people are giving these offerings. More and more people are bribing these guards. More people are not being proper Christians, right? The baptism is going to be our seal. But what happens when you're not a better person for it or you're still, mm. you know, you're still um, coveting your neighbor's wife? You know, what happens when you're not this morally perfected person despite being reborn in this way, right? Then I think one of the anxieties is like, we're going to lose too many people. So if we can get a train moving, you know, where everyone follows, you know, yeah. whether it's through martyrdom or through being inspired by and shaken by the martyrs, you know, then they'll remember how important and serious this time is. I think it plays too into, I mean, just it's worth noting that the only quality of sainthood in the early days was martyrdom. Yeah, precisely. This is, they weren't this even is, called saints yet. They weren't they saints, witness. They were martyrs. They died for mm-hmm. their faith. Mm-hmm. So virginity and chastity was the way of preserving that in your lifetime to remain, keep your body holy and to live a chaste life, which is different from being a virgin. Um, but the idea of being in Congress with uh, the state of grace that then if you can die in that state of grace by keeping your faith, no matter what the torture is presented to you. So this, this notion of the restless Christian dead that are the saints are also blessed. They're at war. They're at war with Satan. And they're mm-hmm. actively at war. They are on the cross with Christ in his suffering as a saint, even after death. That that is their job, to be at the crux between these things. And that part fascinates me because you also get the notion of the good thief is actually the verification of this, that Jesus says, you will be with me this day in paradise. So there is no, there is no possible way for that thief to met, met, meet Catholic canonical concepts of the resurrection will have, the day of resurrection happens in the future, mm. because the, that good thief in repenting right there becomes one of someone who's in agony with Jesus. It's the model for what sainthood is 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 about. Mm. Idea that you then are at war through being mm. at peace in some ways, um, and also the idea that if you die a martyr, you become instantly put into heaven. You will not have to go through the horrors of a thousand-year Armageddon, mm. which will happen if you go mm. through Judgment Day the normal way. It also makes more sense of why their bones are capable of being worked along with being restless, like what what they are put to do. Definitely. I mean, it certainly seems like that. <laughs> right. Uh, the fascinating part of it, I mean, how someone recently putting up the idea of a necromantic saint and my argument is like all saints are necromantic. All <laughs> saints are necromantic. It's like part of what their doctrine is. We're mm-hmm. not talking about someone, the, the idea of what it is within Christianity, especially when the Catholic doctrine, that there is a physical person that died. And now of course the process is far more um, rigorous than it used to be, but that's true of many things, um, including right. exorcism. Um, and the concentration on relics, as you, as you, you know, well pointed out earlier, 
you know, means that even if this figure might be reclassified on some revisionist turn as being more mythic than ever a real person, if there's a skull in a reliquary that is called, you know, uh, that saint, then there's, there's some, there's some dead fellow there. Uh, who's been receiving prayers and empowerment um, for probably a while. Any conflation between those things, the, the, the parable Lazarus versus the historical Lazarus. Right. The, the three sets of Cosme and Damian. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the, the different Mary Magdalene heads. You know, <laughs> what, are, what exactly are we dealing with here? Um, so I, I just, I love this concept of relic because I think it plays into the, the materialism that, that, uh, from the early divide, even from Sumerian texts, right, of necromancy of the spirit versus necromancy of the body. Um, Skiomancy versus necromancy, yeah. Yeah, and that there is um, almost a universal understanding now of it talking about spirit and never physical remains. And up until recently, it was much harder to get physical remains unless you dug them up yourself. But, you know, human bones are far more trafficable than they used to be um, with the advent of the internets. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and certainly at least to be discussed and talked about because it is it is not illegal in every state. Um, in many states, you can purchase human remains uh, if there's, you meet certain qualifications and others, you can purchase them outright no matter what. Yeah. Um, you know, crossing them over state borders is its own thing. Um, and it just brings up whole beautiful things of what does it mean? Like, are you dealing with notions even of collective dead when you go into a lot of traditional Catholic cemetery structures of a family ossuary. So like the tomb of the most recent person buried in the center. Right. And, and unless they're a notable ancestor, you know, they're kind of just taken apart and put into all the skulls go here and the long bones go here because those mm. are the bones we need for resurrection, which is its own thing. That whole myth of the, that whole lore of the loose bone that might be the C7 vertebra. It might be the tailbone uh-huh. femurs because that's the height of the man or woman and their skull, this, this type of thing of skull and crossbones being symbolic of the height and breadth of the person. And therefore, you can be resurrected from those things. It's one of the reasons that the church forbids uh, division of relics past a recognizable point. Mm. So, if it if it if it's a fingernail, it should look like a fingernail, right? It, it could be woolly mammoth hair or something like that. And you get that with like saints like um, Rosalia, or Rosalia, who you know goat bones, goat bones, most likely. And that's nothing. Maybe she was a goat shapeshifter, and that's fine, right? Zoltan a cappella, yeah. <laughs> that's hilarious. I have my moments. Um, <laughs> I have been thinking about this in terms of churchyards more broadly as well. And so I, I, I and the stuff I've been looking at in the Cyprianic material in the uh, Spark Konstbocker, the, the, the compendium that um, we released uh, through uh, Revelor Press of uh, the works of Dr. The late Dr. Uh, Thomas Johnson. Uh, so I've been looking at borrowing bones, uh, usually borrowing them from churchyards, uh, usually for for healing practices. And I was discussing this with uh, with a friend, and they pointed out the similarities with uh, it's 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 treating the bone. Which, by the way, it just says you know you go to a churchyard, you ask permission, you dig up some bones, you take them, you do a thing with them, either transfer the disease to them. Uh, via morning dew on a summer's day or cook them up uh, or heat them up and put them in water and then use that water to um, to, to wash them on as a, as a healing bath while uh, an exhortation is said over it. But then you return the bones uh, and, 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 put, and this friend of mine pointed out that this is, this is very like 
treating these otherwise anonymous bones from a churchyard as a saint. So there's kind of this idea of like a hyper-local saint. There's nothing in either of the texts or or any of the texts I've looked at so far that suggests that the bones are treated like a saint. They're not, you know, you don't dig them up and say, I baptize you as the, you know, the finger of St. Peter or whatever. Uh, But there's still that layer of practice with them where crucially either the bone is shepherding the disease away from you and and in those transferences it's it's buried and as it's buried you say you know as i cover you with earth may the disease rots in the ground now uh, but the the human bone soup one is especially interesting to me because it's a power of healing uh that is harvested from heating the bones and putting them in water you're not transferring to the bones you're 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 transferring a healing virtue uh, to the water from the bones that you're then healing someone with. And so this idea that there's a, that the bones themselves are radiating a, a healing virtue rather than uh, a psychopomp of disease taking them away to the, to, 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 to the underworld. So that notion of apply that, that potentially any relic in a, any, any bone in a, in a churchyard might have, might have, was certainly used, uh, at a, at a folk level, um, like, a like a saint's bone as well. I find that super fascinating. There's something um, very similar in a lot of um, different Serbian villages I'm familiar with where uh, the body of someone who's passed, who it was known that magic was done on them, mm. um, can be used for the same purpose that that magic was used. So, for mm. example, um, uh, Sveti, Sveti Kosma and Damian, so Cosmos and Damian, they are not a lot of lore on them in the official like Orthodox uh, sort of doctrine, mm-hmm. um, but hugely popular. Um, venerated very much for healing, but also for like sarnamagia or like black magic, as we say. So like they um, are often petitioned to heal people and the person who heals and when they die, you know, their body can be reused to kind of remind the saints, hey, remember when you did this? Yes. It's not a person, right? They become witnesses again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They become witnesses to the original act or someone who was killed through them. Uh, you know, oh, oh, <laughs> big, hmm. big folk necromancy, but you know, the um, they, they can be used for plenty of uh, sort of like curses and so on you get um someone who died that way you know you can use them to con- the bone becomes like a plague it becomes this contamination so you can mm-hmm. bury under someone's lot to make their cows lose their ability to have milk or mm-hmm. to make uh, their finances drain you know and so on there's a lot of wealth slash milk slash fertility stealing um mm-hmm. sort of magic especially with weaponizing your own house spirit versus someone else's house spirit yeah so it becomes this kind of um you know my house is cooler than your house sort of thing where like the local because they're conceived of as serpents before they became these gnome like um they're called like vidas sometimes like these fathers or grandfathers you know but these original serpent spirits under the houses you could weaponize them against each other so it would go out and get you the milk which would then bring it back to your cow and make it more fertile and so on but then when that thing dies you can use it as as a reminder to your spirit remember when you did this so i find Mm -hmm. that super fascinating because i've been reading a lot about um and talking to people recently about sort of the this notion of how the bones of people for whom miracles were made manifest or are reused and this is especially true when you want to like let's say um do something with the spirit of someone who died but you don't have them let's say and this is rare because normally like you know you live next to a village that has all the people buried anyway around it but in case you move or in case you know you get married especially as a woman and you go to a completely different place uh what happens when you need uh to access the spirit of someone who normally you could literally go to their, directly to their grave and there's this fun thing where you can take the bones or the, the the human remains of someone who let's say magic was performed on for similar purposes take it out and 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 tell it you know either you will become this person that I'm trying to do magic on or trying to contact or I'm going to force you to do it instead 
Mm. And so you're going to be forced to wander or do whatever I need you to do. Um, and, and I'll use you or you'll give up your possession of this bone and become the other person. So there's this like ability to transmute spirits into the physical remains through agency of saints as well as other spirits and so on. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. And kind of combines that like this, the element of forcing there again. Oh yeah, it's definitely a threat. <laughs> <laughs> I find that fascinating with the uh, some of the other uh, black arts book stuff, like the um, the operation. I think we were talking about to um, to get a skull to reveal lottery numbers to you uh, mm-hmm. in dream. On the one hand, it says that you go to a churchyard and you ask permission to take the skull, but then when the spirit turns up, it you know it demands its head back, and there's a sense that the the, the idea of like heavy scare bunny quote is. Uh, you've asked permission, you've stated that you're doing it, uh, and then you're holding onto the skull until you get those sweet lottery number picks. Uh, and <laughs> then they can have their skull back. So, yeah, I'm not bringing it back until you give me what I asked for. Right, right. So so, so you've asked permission and you're going to return it, but also the you haven't really waited for them to give permission. It's like well, putting I, icons I, I, upside down and so on. I'm curious what that is too, because in the does it specifically mention that you ask permission of the spirit itself? I would need to check, but that's a very good point because that's what I was it's wondering as well. Oftentimes yeah. in Catholic magic, you ask permission of God to do anything. Mm-hmm. But do a prayer to God or like the the bless every work prayer that is common in in in, in your people, uh, <laughs> the bearded ones. Um, no, uh, <laughs> the, the the idea that you ask permission of God, even in, in, in Mexico, right, to, um, to invoke Santisima Muerte, that you right. ask permission of the omnipresent, Dios to to call upon an angel to call upon the angel of death to call upon the guardian angel of someone else right. so the notion of the, the it could be very interesting to also i mean i, I have no idea what the specific technology that is because it's different cultural things there uh, but that idea too that you could ask permission of the graveyard and of the sanctity of the church and the saints that there dwell to right. do what you're going to do but have not actually asked permission of the person who it belongs to mm-hmm. so um it's kind of like sneaking into a um, a place and borrowing the uniform of one of the wait staff, and then that wait staff's like, "Yo, I'm naked over here. Like, what's going on?" Um, or like, "Well, like the doorman let me in, yeah. uh, and you know, I'll give it back to you when I'm done with it." Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, the the thing with the the boiling of the bones is interesting because from a, to offer an alternative viewpoint, this is um, there's some New Mexican Rio Grande Valley type of thing where boiling bones means that you've made a death broth and this is death to disease. And you tell the bones as they're boiling that their job is to take the disease with them. Um, so it's not necessarily viewed like, and I don't know what this, but it's, it has a similar thing. Instead of the bones transferring it, you're using the, the broth as a, a type of holy water that's been blessed. Right. To then go kill disease itself. It's actually um, considered a baptism of the disease itself or uh, a, 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 a giving it its, you know, confession as it's as that little demon that is the disease of like here's your choice you know right but it is you can now accept christ as your lord and savior or you can be put on the the list of of what i'm i'm going to be sending a metaphor of of how i'm condemned to warm in outer darkness um <laughs> but that's no, that that's but that's fascinating yeah that mm-hmm. it, it might not necessarily be viewed as healing so much as it the, the end purpose is healing but that it that extending the the natural state of bones which are at rest because they were in a graveyard and you took them out of rest Mm-hmm. to do something with them um, to then be able to put them at rest again um, only to use the water to take the disease and 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 wash the person of it right because uh, you know the average person if you said that you were going to clean them as a as a folk healer and you took out you know smelly moans from your cabinet we're like we're just going to pass these over your body that's okay great yeah don't report me to the priest 
Uh, <laughs> whereas opposed if it's just like a funny colored tea that smells kind of off, like mm-hmm. maybe that's easier. That's a very good point. It's a very good point. Plausible deniability. Mm-hmm. I think, um, I mean, not that we haven't talked about this a, a lot um, and can continue to bring it in, but I find uh, some lovely fascination here with not only Kunyukyo as this bringing of things together and mm-hmm. the intersection, the natural kind of Vesica Pisces that is the, the figure of Kunyukyo. Mm-hmm. Um, um, or in the British conjunctio, and also the the bezoar as this kind of weird after relic of the body of like this. It's not a body of light, but a body of uh, of of retaliation. The body has has made a stone, right? Something that shouldn't exist there. Out of, yeah, out of hair. Yeah, out of out of calcite. So I mean, like kidney stone <laughs> bezoars. Like, mm-hmm. can you? What do you do with that? Can you save your kidney stones? I mean, that'd be a lot easier than, than paying for a goat bezoar half the time. But, you know, sometimes the episodes are kind of designed, and this one was in, to kind of see this flow between these things in this way. Yeah, yeah. Um, Conjunctio is the mercurial figure of, of, of geomancy that uh, I associate with Gemini as opposed to Virgo, some of the... Um, attributations as we frequently discuss um swap those rounds and geomancers are often very very idiosyncratic about their particular correspondences but the shape of it is the um you know is the familiar metal horns uh, if we were to do the the geomantic gang signs with it two one one two uh its shape recalls an x right uh it's the the x that marks the spot um there's a an X of crossing. We can think about it like that, a site of crossing. Um, not the traveler who crosses crucially, but the place at which crossings happen, right? Uh, via is a lot more like that, which does the, does the crossing is the, is the kind of das almas to the incruciadas. If we, if we want, like the X is also like that kind of hourglass pinch, right. Of attesting um, choice and, 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 and change and, and chance. Uh, and it's uh, it's referred to as a liminal figure because it's um, neither, exiting it doesn't have a pointy end near the top or a pointy end near the bottom and so isn't really uh stable either and i think about it as the that kind of liminal knife point of, of decision making whether the immovable object meets the unstoppable force you know um that they're both the chevrons are both putting uh, inwards and you know i like the idea that it's the x of of of, of an illiterate uh, signature as well it's the x on the contract that you can't read and we're also back to to kisses again as well you know the idea of it being uh uh, an exchange or or something that's sealed with a with a kiss uh, as well, along with it having you know being being devil horns and then having some uh, metal associations, which itself is from what Dio's uh, Nona, right? Um, it's 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 another uh, Italian um, blessing, right, or or exorcism of of, of cursing of some kind, uh, and it makes me think again, like considering it as a as a fi- uh, a figure of of union, um, as a figure of uh, bringing things together, uh, a figure of like crossing things. Um, it often seems to rule, you know, children. So it's, it's assemblage on the one hand and it's, it's invention. It's combining that, which we don't know to discover what we do know to discover that, which we don't. I, I think a lot of cut up is, is present there. This, the, the coagula, uh, to the salve is, 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 is there. Uh, but I also think like, uh, people of two worlds, uh, are there as well. You know, the bilinguality, uh, if that is indeed a term, uh, seems to be a very conjunctio concept and from that kind of uh, hybridity um, that it suggests as well uh, very often. 
But I also like this idea that hybridity is is rooted in two things at once rather than being this like floating uh, artificial uh, syncretism. Um, that it's uh, it's the bridge itself, right? Uh, and very midst through which such a bridge passes, as opposed to again like via being the the crossing of the bridge. Um, and when we're into bridges, that also kind of makes me think of the Wattle concepts of uh, Nepantla. Am I saying that right? The, uh, the, and I was, I was, I was reading up. I, we've maybe talked about, we definitely talked about this before. We might have talked about this on the show, but um, uh, Gloria and Zaldua's uh, thing about bridges as thresholds to other realities mm-hmm. uh, and this take on uh, the, the, the world entirely in, um, uh, in the middle kind of thing uh the trauma the transformations that occur in an in-between space an unstable unpredictable um just precarious always in transition space and again like living in this liminal zone being in a, a constant state of displacement but that, that that's also become can become a sort of home uh, and she says through this state it links us to other ideas peoples and worlds yeah nepantla is is um akin to interwovenness so even though it is a connection, there is there is no interwovenness without the memory of the gaps in between. Right. So you know, I think the the first recording of the word Napantla is in uh, the interview of uh, uh, an indigenous man to say, "Where where do you find yourself now after the conquest?" And he says, "We are Napantla. We do not know what we are. Hmm. We are both and not. We are everything and nothing because mm-hmm. you have replaced." And shattered our ideas, but we are still those things, and we are still other things added together. So the interwovenness of those concepts um, in Nawaz cosmology is going to be what's looked at there. So Anzal Dois is, of course, a personal favorite of mine, but um, you know, she's a, a Chicano cultural theorist, um, queer theory, feminist theory, and and definitely looks at these things through um, uh, through a modern lens uh, in that way. Perhaps mm. not as necessarily in like the constructionist lens or the linguistic lens necessarily uh, necessarily but there's something really beautiful there i think what strikes me about conjunctio and um it's in a relationness to woody the if i would do uh, is its uh relationship to i mean at least there are so many theories of generation of the figures outside of more specific cultural contextualization so it's difficult to say like oh this one comes from this one this one arises from this one but there's um, most agreed upon as far as 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 Yoruba um, Ifa going that it's the the primal four figures being the uh, Ogbe and Oyekun meaning uh, the equivalents of Via and Populus mixed mm-hmm. with Iwari and Odi which are Konyokyo and Karker yeah um, and that this the the opposite of of Konyokyo is Karker and this idea of um, meeting in the middle versus a container that is born through through Carker of of sealed at the ends, um, and and of something in the middle that is empty versus conjunctio, which is open at the ends, as you described of, of uh, transient, um, no pointy bits. That uh, there's something unified at the center. So this this relationship between them that is that appears to be the mating of the day and night opposites that are um, Ogbe and and Oyekun or or, or Via and um, uh, populace, this idea of how to combine these in ways that we can start to interact with, which also gives birth to the pop pop possibility. There's the p word of <laughs> all the other figures. Yeah, because the, we have you know you can go through and go from head down to feet, which some people talk about the origins of the figures in that way, and then double you know double open or double closed up top. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But this interaction on a cause on a on a whole level, uh, I do find the kind of primal fire that is Iwari and its its understanding of the consciousness that is then placed inside the container that was born through Kodger, um or mm. through it. And so that the 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 primal fire and water of of full light and full darkness, the earth of Kodger and and Odidis that is ultimately this the womb tomb um vaginas from which we are all put forth, that the consciousness that is born through there is beyond its container, beyond Karker, and is the fire burning within that. Um, and so there's this, this relationship to transformation, um, transubstantiation, uh, consciousness, uh, and, and therefore becomes a very difficult figure for practical, everyday advice. <laughs> um, and therefore gets relegated also to one of the quote-unquote higher Odu that are not often read in, in, in New World de Lagoon, uh, specifically mm. for Caribbean. And so it, it becomes a higher number because it's, it's one of those things where like practicality-wise, we're talking huge concepts here. Um, right. And this bringing of things together, well, what things are being brought together? You then have to analyze it to get more practical past that. There's a, a lot of uh, association I find in with, with conjunctio of um, fast talking as well. It's, um, you know, if, if Albus is everything we do know about uh, Mercury as a, you know, um, as a as a, a, a solitary and scholarly librarian or archivist, uh, conjunctio has that quality of the two headed devil at the crossroads of the of everything we don't know about Mercury as a as a trickster and uh, and certainly when it, it said that whenever it crops up in relation to questions about um, the possibility of death, it's incredibly dangerous, right? It's that again, it's that knife edge of uh, of the demimond um, and specifically that notion of like the figure itself having a kind of, um, you know, smooth talking, silver tongued, not necessarily deceit, but certainly taking you for a ride. And I, I don't know if that's um, similarly expressed as like just how abstract it can be and how quickly it can, it can lead you into the middle of nowhere, right? The middest of midpoints um, through uh, trying to simultaneously juggle two or more sets of very complicated concepts. I'm really t- captivated by the description of like the relationship between Kunyuntu and Karker. Um, something that I've been thinking about a lot, some new lore that I've heard and also received um, in many different ways through books of talking to relatives is this a notion that uh, quick um, disclaimer. Um, that, so I, there's this notion that like certain spirits will marry humans or marry places, right? And mm-hmm. one of them, for example, is this Maya the dragon. It will marry either a place, like a location, like a forest or a particular river or a mountain. And then the things in that boundary become like them. So animals can suddenly live centru- like, you know, centuries or even decades, um, uh, for, depending on the species, uh, longer than normally would. And then they would become well, one of this mice, you know, or you have the marrying people. And there's this very fascinating thing I keep coming up in interviews and in anthropological surveys and in talking to people that like when it marries a place that becomes kind of like a car car boundary. Mm. It's contained. It's um, in a way uh, considered to be transient, but also um, different set apart from other nature spirits because now the soul of that particular location is belonging and being mutated by the dragon. It's under um, a mantle of yeah. some kind. Right. And then, but the people become this weird font of um, madness and inspiration and lust and power and so on. And they become always floating in between because the human soul, as it becomes more and more like as my, as they age or because they give birth to one, um, yeah. it ends up becoming this weird sort of 
nothing can really quite pin them down and you're never quite sure if it's one side or the other that's talking you know mm. so just i hear a lot in anthropological sort of like uh, interviews with people or even just recently a documentary i saw uh, people talking about you know relatives who they knew were married to dragons and they were like yeah you know it's totally different than when i hiked into that forest that also you know was married to a dragon you know because yeah. you have um because there you know when you're walking in when you're walking out of it you know yeah. whereas the person is always flowing in between right they're the nexus point where the dragon is because you know if you want to if you want to petition, let's say the dragon of Yesterbut's Mountain, you can just go to there, you know. Yeah. Whereas if you want to petition the dragon that's married to a person, there's right. all these other factors that come into play. Like, you know, the it's not as straightforward. The person can be incredibly irritable, moody about it, or the dragon can resist, or, or you know, there's all these rituals that people perform, uh, trying to cock block dragons by like dancing around someone's home and banging pots and pans and being like, stop what you're doing and go tend to the fact that our crops are dying and stop yes. the hail and bring in the good weather, you know, but there's this notion that there's a danger there when it's linked to a human That's because it invites an open-ended connection into the human consciousness of their world, which mm-hmm. causes madness and, and, and inspiration in the person, obviously. But it also um, means that a part of them is always sending back sort of human life to their world. And so they right. become this pillar of it, right? Which makes me think of the, just the physicality of the way that these geomantic figures are, are, you know, reproduced, you know, yeah. and the way that they can be used in magic is this um, intensity of, you know, and you mentioned with the Mercury figure, right? You know, it's it's not quite the, um, you know, the scholar that, that it seems kind of tame at certain points, though he never is, right? You know, <laughs> it's the, specifically the, the horn and double at, at the crossroads, you know, and this trickster entity that you're, it's the chthonic hurries, you know, mm. that you're never quite sure how to pin him down, right? But it's also this, what happens when you're receiving or transmitting or being the psychopomp, right? You know, is mm. something is always coming with your feet and your head is moving in forward, you know? And this person ends up being a nexus between two worlds that are constantly communicating in them in the way that um, the forest becomes an expression of that creature on Earth. And it's its permanent location, whereas the human one, they die and they'll go right. Right back to where they used to be. Yeah, there seems a big like time space thing going on here, yeah. right? Uh, I was thinking about that even in relation to like, a, you know, a very simple way of of, of uh, relating the, of Kaka being a, a lock and you know the separation enforced in boundaries and conjunctio being a key but then i was thinking well no it's it's more about how conjunctio is the moment and crucially the momentum of the union of the turning key and the shifting lock right so one of them is 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 is, is bound in 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 place uh across time and one of them is you know bound in uh space through time the distinction between person. door hinges the actual uh what's what's the name of it the latch uh, yeah and then the turny thingy that I'm thinking of in Serbian, yeah. not in English. Yes, the thank knob. you. Handle the, handle, the yeah. knob, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, and that they have teeth <laughs> and a bow. Uh, yeah, the, all the part. Like I was, I was looking at a diagram of the the technical terms for all the different parts of the key um, the other day, um, which just just fulfilled my love of everything having its own little name. <laughs> and the force which acts upon it, right? The right that what grasps it. it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. What it makes me think of. Um, I'd never considered before of this uh, marriage to a place versus marriage to a person and, and what that brings up in this, in, in the flavor of conjunctio versus um, Karker of um, this, the discussion of the Shekhinah as God's bride, as mm-hmm. the force of, of the ineffable upon the earth. And that originally this force was contained in Eden and it was breached through the actions of man. So mm-hmm. in Eden, in an Edenic sense, um, Adam, Kadmon, and, and beyond, that, that there is this union that is happening because of containment, that the boundary is there, but it cannot truly be contained. 
and there is a fire of consciousness, um, something happens when the man is unified with their potential for noticing good and evil, um, and the prison is broken. And then the spirit of God moves from the containment of Edenic union into a force that then flows across the earth, which is eventually contained again in the Holy of Holies, the, or at least allows it to descend in the Holy of Holies over the Ark of the Covenant, which is the symbol of union of mm. a people, which was also shattered, interestingly. So this, this union, which was then broken apart, and through the, the, the taking of that broken apartness, it, it becomes a, a token of union with God. Yeah, a compact or a, a contract is so interesting in how it expresses both the qualities of conjunctio and, and carca, like the, the coming together to do it is, is obviously conjunctio-ish, but like the, 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 the moving forward, it having been done that we now are bounded by it, mm-hmm. uh, feel, is, mm-hmm. is, is, is far more carca. And so of course these things uh, are held together along the, the silvery uh, riptide of mirrors that is, that is via, right. That, that which invert, um, <gasps> but links itself. It's one of the things I've always found super fascinating about like Isaac Luria's uh, take on Kabbalah is this notion that it's actions, specifically the actions of the chosen people, that will restore the body of God. But to do that, you got to like essentially release the sparks of light that are trapped within these shells that are broken because the original vessels could not contain it. Um, yeah. They broke at some point as the light was descending through the the spheres of the tree of life. You know? uh, the concept there too, if you go off of the the, the heavy discussion, especially um, the kind of cathodic as- obsession that that happens in 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 dark LHP uh, dark fluff, like a mm-hmm. lot of things that are that are or working off of Lurianic ideals that are mm-hmm. been promoted. But the notion that everything is clip off, everything mm-hmm. a shell that has a limit, and that to in as far as and I'll probably be misquoting him, and then he'll send me an email and we'll talk for another four hours. <laughs> um, David Hyam Smith talking about this that you know the the idea that there are two trees is. Um, uh, the, the true heresy to to it destroys the unity and the potential to talk about a tree of life and a tree of death. Mm-hmm. The understanding that all things are shells, and that to that they are also not shells because we're talking about non dualism, which is incredibly hard to, to freaking deal with. Um, but that in our understanding of things, that we can create a radiant shell, cliffanoga, right? So mm-hmm. that's a word for Venus, but brilliant shell. Mm-hmm. It then breaks through that shell and then exposes another shell past that. So the container is then broken by illumination. We are, through realizing the boundary, not thinking we're at the ultimate, but realizing the boundary then illuminates the next possibility, the next containment that we then do. So it is an interesting um, expansion past, just as if we take this Edenic force that then becomes um, parallel to, I'm not going to say equivalent to, the Shekhinah in the temple, that through Jesus's re- um, death, that Paraket is, is rent in twain, and the Shekhinah descends across the earth. You know, the democratization of magic, that is a myth that is that is heavily talked about in Kimbanda, that we've talked about with Menlochi before. But mm-hmm. this idea going forth, again, of this relationship between the pulsing outward that is only possible because of the containment inward of Karkar that bursts forth something that, that is the exact complement to it, that is conjunctio, that, that the, the child is reunited or, or just united with their parents uh, through the birth canal, that it mm. bursts forth and becomes a union with the father um, in this lovely um, uh, patriarchal metaphor. But the idea that then the, the bridegroom um, uh, it, it, it is the facility by which 
the, the thing trapped in matter can burst forth into the waiting arms of the parent. Um, which then brings up whole things of like um, you know, the mother of size, mother of sorrow stuff of Levana and the, the deity that is in charge of the father recognizing the, the legitimacy of the child by holding it aloft and naming it. But this idea of conjunctio and the fleeting nature of what that is, can, can you, what is the union? And that's perhaps why it's such a, a difficult thing to pin down. Like it has occurrences, but it's also, you don't, it is rare to stand in a crossroads. And when you stand in a crossroads, you become Hamlet or dead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I think it ties back super nicely just to the marriage of place or person, yeah. what it feels like to be in, in, in that crossroads, right? The thing with like Luria as well is 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 the idea that the light will spread to the other nations, right? If people are acting in this way and, and liberating these things by recognizing their boundaries and by kind of upholding the laws and so on, is that other people will will see the cascade of it, right? You know, which is funny because we talked about martyrdom and how that can sort of function a similar way, um, is you get this notion that eventually the entire body of God, which is dispersed, you know, and, and, and negotiated in both like the physical world and not becomes unified. So it's, it's a project to sort of like rebuild Adam Cadmon, but also recognizing that it's always instantiated everywhere. Hmm. On that kind of visual metaphor, um, cause I totally love to come back to any topics multiple times, but this idea of a seed pod that bursts forth, that spreads its seeds um, is our plant is Datura. Uh, is this spiny uh, vesica, this vaginus, that then rolls back and the seeds are exposed and are most often shaken down. It's not usually, it's not a, a windborne um, thing, but it, uh, you know, the, a large number of the plants are, are annuals that are going to uh, self-seed. So there, it's this, this uh, mother of thousands that happens, this, this um, incredibly toxic plant that is revered as a witch plant uh, in almost every culture where it occurs as right. something to be of note that it, it gives strange visions or kills you or grants shape-shifting ability or grants you um, the idea of what witchcraft is in this older sense, which is you know also a, a, a nod to our topic, but that it makes you lose your humanity in mm. proximity to the plant or mm-hmm. by ingesting it. Um, that that your that you exchange souls or lose souls or gain new souls in different versions of what this is, but the contextualization that there is something wholly dangerous, and I I, I put the W there um, as well, <laughs> not put it there <laughs> uh, about the plant, the the devil's trumpet, the 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 ghost flower, the sorcerer's herb, hell's bells, hell's bells, and 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 as lovingly innocuous as things like moonflower or or Jimson weed, which comes from Jamestown, um, where people did not recognize the immature fruit and put it in a salad. And I think there were what, 11 soldiers that were throwing their shit at each other for a number of days. Uh, <laughs> or like, don't eat the Jimson weed. It's bad. Except if you're cattle and you're singing Home on the Range, uh, <laughs> which is its own thing. Um, it, it, is, it has a reputation um, to relatives that it has uh, between Mandrake and uh, Belladonna and uh, Henbane are all largely related um, in chemical compoundness. I mean, we're dealing with, um, especially when you deal with the treatatoras like Rugmansia, which are the, the shrubs or uh, not shrubs. They're, they're woody um, uh, versus uh, herbaceous. Uh, mm-hmm. in that way. Right. Tropane alkaloids, I believe. Right. With yes. Solanaceous. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which are notoriously difficult to um, judge dosage on even from leaf to leaf. 
uh, and also have a, a radically different effect on people uh, depending on their general tolerance, their their tolerance at that time of day, that time of month, that time of year. Uh, yes, this is why Erowid is full of accounts of people, you know, hitting hitting half a bong of uh, of, of some detour relief and, and 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 getting nothing, and others spending the next three days, you know, um, chasing their dead relatives from crawling up their legs. Well, it's also the very Mandrake-like comparison in that giver of so many truths, and I hope I'm not making enemies here, um, but Castaneda, who um, is is a problematic figure, um, but in the teachings of Don Juan, details the process by which you extract the medicine of the root and the carving of the root, mm-hmm. which it is known in, in um, several indigenous cultures in the Southwest to be to, to be much the way Mandrake would have been treated mm-hmm. um, of carving male roots versus female roots and using it as a, as a, a way to grant um, knowledge. So Datura having this ability to um, in different areas, either make you fly or to extend your legs so that you can travel the world quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, the reputation with these, the, the shape-shifting type of sorcery. Um, and it's also, it's such a, a plant that it appears in many forms around the world. So there's, you know, Datura is Sanskrit. Um, and hmm. this is its own thing that is now referred to as, you know, the apple of Peru, the, the devil's apple, um, all right. these different ones. And certainly um, Datura stramonium being one of the very classic exemplars, but um, metal that has its own uh, huge uh, groups, anoxia, um, Quercifolia and, and um, Rydie and these other subclassifications that have, have been out and then the hybrids that come from there. It's also one of those plants that I think many burgeoning psychonauts and, and um, uh, witch-thumbed gardeners like to grow because it's an incredibly easy plant to grow. Mm-hmm. As long as you don't let it freeze, it, it, it can take on, it needs water, but it can still survive drought and re-blossom. And it makes beautiful flowers that smell intoxicating, rightly so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that will, you know, unfurl and unfurl in these like gorgeous curlings and uncurlings um, and follow the moon very often as well. Uh, I consider it a, a, a great plant for working with spirits of Via uh, as well. Yeah, especially the, the night blossom ones like like um, moonflower. Yeah. Uh, so Stramonium, which is will bloom during the day, just mm-hmm. fine. But um, just the, the different versions of it. And then... Uh, lore in in uh, central valley mexico of crushing the seeds and using the the juices of the leaves and things to help in the medicine that allows the the captive victim to believe that they are the god Hmm. so the notion of sacrifice and what that means that the idea that you are transferring you are actually offering the god a version of themselves that that you make them think that they are wanting to be a martyr Mm-hmm. And part of the way this is achieved is through topical and topical use and ingestion of certain substances that then the person lives as the God for 20 days that is bathed and is clothed and all these things done to it. And, you know, I can't look into the, the timeline and say what the effect of this thing is in, in practicality, um, especially through a outside only edic uh, conversion standpoint of the, of sure. the standards. but this idea that you are, that the mythology supports that the God sacrificed um, for humans to exist 
and that we owe them this sacrifice in turn. But what's interesting about it is that we actually end up, sac- we mirror their sacrifice by the victim thinking that they are as God. Mm-hmm. So just in the way that the martyr re-experiences the death of Jesus in their own death. Mm-hmm. Similarly, which, which is just an example of like, why would anybody think this is necessarily that strange to, mm-hmm. to, to invoke the God, the, the, mm-hmm. the God dying, not you, yeah. and uh, that you are granted a, a portion of immortality through this um, is not unlike Christian martyrdom. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the, the, the preservation of the skulls in the Zonfantli, um, the skull racks that contain the destiny, the Tlanali, the, 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 the impersonal calendrical soul that is a captured piece of sunlight is now put on display as it, as it glorifies this collective soul that is a place that is the city-state of Tlanostitlan uh, for the Aztecs. But I, I find all of that, the stramonium, the, the, the Inoxia itself, which is heavily prized of um, the flower that bends its head, right? Tolawashi um, huik, uh, I believe is the proper one, but tolawache um, is the common uh, Mexican name for it. Comes from that word, the plant that bows its head. And does that have similar law to the to the tropes, the various things called heliotrope or selenotrope of like that which follows the the, the illuminary? Um, the blossoms will uh, go towards the the source of light but from my understanding it's actually a reference to the seed capsules of anoxia so if you've grown um uh anoxia before um and many of the detours all do this that the seed capsules the flowers go up and then when it forms the seed head the seed head then bows down the weight of the seeds Mm -hmm. so it it is a very um the fruit itself bows its head after the flower is is gone heavy as the crown Heavy, heavy is the um, thorn vagitis, <laughs> as it should be. <laughs> but yes, the heart is the clitoris of the chest, after all. <laughs> so yeah, I think um, I think there's something interesting too. I mean, to we can extend because I think it's a separate discussion because the lore is so prevalent for Brugmansias, which are the tree detours, mm-hmm. um, especially in their containments to the possibility of discussing other spirits. Um, in the future, too, um, that are associated with this. But the idea that sleeping near a tatura bush or a tree or under the tree makes you a witch, that there is not much more needed than that than to be sleeping into the shade of that tree, which when we talk about ideas of, of plant souls and the breasts that are exchanged and the time-space seal that happens of the dawn of a new day, of a new soul being breathed across the land by the sun, that now mm. you have a soul that is shared with this plant mm. and it, it is an exchange of power and therefore you are married to it in some way. And you are also have lost part of your humanity in gaining part of its soul. Mm. And this notion of this, I think is really where I'm interested in this discussion with, with the two lovely of you. Um, that was a weird way of putting that, but um, I, I respect both of your uh, discussions we've had on this in the, in the past and uh, uh, just the possibilities of this because the, qu- the qualities of what exactly is sorcery versus witchcraft has, and as someone who identifies as witch, but still very much understands that the, the notion and definition of witch has changed um, hugely in modern era. And after it has been, especially the 20th century, I don't know if we'll ever fully recover from its psychologicization and its use as the term for any outcast, which we see parallels in what we've talked about, that now any magical act is being considered magic, which I don't necessarily agree with. That, that just because something has a transformative effect does not mean that it was magic with intent. 
but mm-hmm. any intentional act, does that make it magic or does this dilute with the discussion of magic proper? Mm-hmm. Um, does then the notion of like, what does magic look like is a whole thing because it, I don't want to be personally, I don't feel the need to contain it or be elitist about it. But there are times where I find myself being like, but is that magic? Is like making tea <laughs> magical? I mean, like it does engage all the elements. I understand that um, <laughs> from, from an Aristotelian point of view, but like, is that magic? Right. Um, I'm really glad that you brought up the um, the non-human aspect to it and the losing the human part and getting signals. There's yeah. uh, a discussion I had uh, quite recently in an AMA I was doing um, because in the Serbian, especially just in general, broadly speaking, the Balkan context, um, a witch is something, there's a lot of terms for kinds of folk magicians, right? And sometimes I like to really go deep into these because I think the regional variations are super fascinating, especially when you look into how they differ, the utilitarian aspects of it, like what is this person doing that makes them the same as this person from this utter village? How are they broadly mm-hmm. similar? And so on and so forth. But then you get this utter discussion that um, uh, the fact that, you know, which is something few people will openly identify as. Um, and if they, and it's more, it's a status of fear that is, accompanies it. It's this uncomfortable notion of like the folk magician that you ask to intercede uh, or intervene on your behalf to talk to other spirits for you. They can also hear spirits. They can fly out their bodies. They can, you know, do all these different things, heal and curse and bless and so on. Um, and that's all lovely. And you can ask them to, you know, talk to spirits on your behalf and negotiate with them. The witch is something more like the spirit that's being negotiated with. And there's always this um, element of apprehension around that, especially given that, um, you know, a lot of the stories about it is that it's not uh, something that can be passed on from a human to a human. And it's primarily the idea, either you're born this particular way because your parents uh, were the lovers of particular spirits. It can be a vampire even. Um, it can be a fairy. It can be a dragon. It can be any number of things. And then you're born with particular characteristics that, that represent that. Uh, the other is that, you know, you're forcibly changed. And there's a, and I think the, it can be consensual. You can have someone who will like wander out into the woods and, and, and try and, and have this happen to them. And yes, there's certain places, especially like um, dragon uh, land spirits you can sleep in. You can go out and ask the Shumnik, this like wandering hairy uh, forest man to change you. You can ask some of the um, spirit, the women spirits who um, guard these particular whirlpools that always spin counterclockwise. And uh, you can have them help you out and actually make you into uh, transform you to something by taking things out of you and putting things into you. But there's always this anxiety around that it's never going to be a safe process. Not everyone's going to survive. Even the um, the fact that, you know, a lot of these love stories that I love to read about and, and these uh, myths, I'm always ordering more books on them and talking to people is these dragon stories, people who fell in love with dragons or fairies and and how, you know, amazing that is. And it's this, you know, beautiful thing. Uh, a lot of them also go crazy, you know, <laughs> and a lot of them um, lose their mind and uh, would rather not be on earth anymore because they can't not relate to any of the humans around them and they have such a and it's such a struggle to realize you can't relate to the humans but you also can't fully relate to the spirits because yeah. they don't accept you fully as one of them but they treat you differently than the humans you know and this uh, the tearing of the soul that occurs when one of the witch mothers or one of the lords you know rips your soul to shreds and puts herbs in there puts animal parts in there gives you new souls you know takes certain parts of you away and then you come back completely dirty and, and raggedy you know and assuming that you know you've survived the ordeal which is not always a guarantee you know you are now treated as an outcast right you know it's you, 
God forbid you live in the same community. And if you do, you have to be very careful about it. Go to church every week. Make sure that, you know, you don't blow your cover, right? Um, don't talk about it. Keeping up appearances, that the yes. strength that is allowed in, in yeah. not letting people know what you're doing. Yes, exactly. Don't tell everyone you're a witch. Don't tell, don't tell them you plan on becoming one. You know, that can already void the contract and make it that the spirits will not even listen to you, you know, and so on and so forth. So you get this like intense um, communal anxiety, but also like the tricksteriness of like, I'm going to do all my stuff under your noses. You know, because I wanted power that badly and I'm going to keep my house and I'm going to keep doing this. And you right. could even say, I'm not actually a witch. I'm, I'm this other thing. I would never do this mm-hmm. other thing that I'm accused of, right? I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm this other kind of folk magician, right? You know, but at the same time, it's this um, knowledge that, you know, when you fly out of your body, it's not a human shape anymore. You know, mm-hmm. when your shadow looks back at you, what's looking back is not a human. And this is something that is really crucial for me and also something as an immigrant myself, I live in Canada, um, it was uh, kind of weird to read about witchcraft um, in this kind of modern Anglo-American sense because it becomes something that, um, you know, can mean folk magic, can be anyone who's doing magic, can also mean um, a kind of revolutionary figure. And I, I you know, I, again, in, in Europe, just this notion that witchcraft is a rebellion, you know, rebellion against fate, which I'm quite um, taken by. But it's also this um, becoming one of the monstrous birds slash serpents slash dragon people that uphold the creation, the fonts of um reality itself, the way that things are born. And it's a, da- it's a great danger because it's the force of death and life. It's the force that takes away the cubs, you know, when they're young, but also, you know, it comes back to slay the parents. It's intense and it's dangerous. It's a predator kind of figure, you know. So this is, I'm referring to some older Serbian mythology. It's, it's pre-Christian, but gets preserved in a lot of the saint stories. So even one of the major saints who patrons, um, witches, uh, who, um, I think it's Demetrius in English, um, but we call him, we want to read Mitrovdan. He is considered the Lord of the Wolves. One of his nicknames is like literally Lord of the Wolves. And you also get the um, notion that he's this very intense figure who is literally a witch himself because he does not belong to either world. And yet he sustains it. He's, it's the monster that's not a god, you know, that is not necessarily agitating fate, but causing it to flow and to change and to flux, you know, and that's what people are willing to lay down their lives for the chance to become essentially on, on their own levels. That liminality again, right? Mm-hmm. And stepping into the, the world. ability, right? Mm-hmm. Stepping into the ability to have that relationship with fate, that it's always this testing thing. It's a rebellion. Yes. But it's also being part of this class of spirits that are essentially gurgling <laughs> with the way that it's, it's potential, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, the notion of hybridity, um, in, and, and conjunctio invocation there, um, uh, as messianic figures or figures that are able to be more than their constituent parts mm-hmm. is, I mean, it, you're talking about this with Demetrius, but it is, is also not uncommon in, I mean, if we take it through a Christian parallel of both being divine nature and human nature, um, that, or, or the various, uh, Finno-Ugric cycles and of, of, uh, bare ceremonialism, um, that I know you and I have talked about of this, these mm-hmm. hybrid bear and humans um, that are uh, stellar in origin. The bears are stellar, right? They yes, the yes. Of heaven. Mm-hmm. And this notion that extends through through many traditions in 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 Europe, um, usually outside of the Indo-Europeans, but um, are still incorporated in much Alpine lore and things like that that are very interesting to me and, and the way that those things survive. This notion of witch as non-human, a race apart, and the difference between uh, that being a creature versus witchcraft, which is a crime, mm-hmm. notably, is is a political uh, denomination of of, of crime uh, mm-hmm. that is not unlike um, the universal chant that is piracy, 
that, you know, this is the, the crime that everyone can be accused of and be tried locally wherever you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, perhaps not which anymore, but it's also one of those um, class uh, clashes that I see in, in Western treatments of the term that imposing that upon other cultures leads to horrible misunderstandings and actually endangerment of, of local traditions as well. Um, but it surprised me how much there was this article I recently shared um, that was talking about Hudson Valley witch houses, um, early Dutch settlement houses that had folk magic in the wall in in the walls on the property, carved mm-hmm. uh, into things. And the author, I think it was a New York Times or um, the New Yorker, maybe um, conflated witchcraft and folk magic to the entire thing, which is not an uncommon thing in yeah, modern. Right. There's no distinction, and mm-hmm. this notion that I uh, to to bridge it to I would love to uh, poke and prod you out with um, perhaps discovery of witchcraft and, and James the first of, of understanding the difference between sorcerers who are human and engaging in magical acts. Um, and the notion of witchcraft and its relationship even to invoking versus worshiping. Um, oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like um, uh, James one slash six is drawing on an Agrippan twofold taxonomy, at least uh, if not as a primary source, it's at least drawing on other sources that are drawing on that. Yeah, sure. The idea that, uh, a witch uh, serves the devil and a necromancer or a necromancer uh, attempts to command the devil or devils, usually through uh, divine names. And this is exactly parallel to Agrippa's twofold taxonomy that he gives that uh, the two main ways to practice uh, GOC or geotic magic or, or, or goesia is uh, either to compel the spirits by uh, the names of, 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 of their creator that they still fear uh, which he says is bad, but at least you're, you know, at least you're not really in league with them. And the alternative, which is, he says, giving offerings and sacrificing to them and worshipping them, which he says is like the worst of the worst of the worst. And we find in terms of what those offerings are, a lot of the, um, the Baconian or the, or the, that which gets called the pseudo Baconian, um, necromancies, the, the various thesaurum, uh, spiritums, uh, often give either animal sacrifice or even they list, um, effigies of animals as well and they go into a great bunch of detail about um wax lambs which are clearly uh, a kind of agnes day kind of thing so again the old religion is is catholicism um but what? certainly <laughs> imagine uh <laughs> imagine that calorie <laughs> right uh but the yes uh so not only do witches serve the devil but are potentially made somewhat uh um, differently human uh i think uh, and again, uh, I'm sure uh, uh, this will uh, maybe up- upset someone. I think we find less of that inhuman <laughs> quality of witches in the British Isles. Um, uh, not that they aren't considered, not that they're considered completely human, but uh, it, but the the exchange between human and animal, or human and spirit, is, is specifically through the variety, the, the specificities of familiar law in the uh, in the British Isles, has something more of a you know, um, suckling across species barriers uh, and things like that, the, the various dark mother inversions, rather than the notion that the witch is entirely um, inhuman. There's something of a, of, a, of a diabolism to them, something of a, that they're drawing on, mm, less framed as a, a physical bloodline, but that the parallels are to uh, fallen angels potentially as well. You know, you have that lovely... Um, quote from 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 my man john hayden 
about rebellion is the sin of witchcraft, right? It's but it's rebellion against the very natural order. He's talking about um, the faction of the heavenly court that scorn humans and decide to rebel against God. You know, he's talking about the the grand uh, rebellion here. And then, he, you know, he goes on to say that a, a witch is a rebel in physics and a rebel is a witch in politics, right? Uh, the one acts against nature, the other against order, the rule of it, but both are in league with the devil for the first father of discord and sorcery. So again, the ideas are separated so that they can then be smushed together again. Yeah, it's it's also we've talked about the various the the inherent sexism in this too. Oh yeah, lends itself very well towards the fact that that one might nurture the devil in the world, and therefore women who are built to nurture on the golden chain of being and the biological determinism that is Western um, etymology and and in inaction mm-hmm. uh, that you know the simple act of breastfeeding or blood feeding through a nipple becomes the the gateway through which humans can become witches and or show that they are witches in this way and mm-hmm. right. the apologists that happen because of the proliferation of literature that goes from the the spanish created idea of witchcraft mm-hmm. or um and specifically catalonian perennian ideas of naming Cathars and Jews as anti-human, as not human, as working against the true church and its politics. Right. That then gets expanded upon and quickly it brought into um, the marriage of Spain and Germany, which was, was one country for a while, right? Of, of this idea that it spreads very quickly, this notion of witchcraft and that these inhuman things exist. What's interesting about it is that the apologists start saying, but the women you're accusing are not witches. They're doing mm-hmm. nothing or they're, they're herbalists or they're mm-hmm. midwives. Or they're just people that you want their property. And and church theologians, no less, calling people out on this, of saying, this is bullshit, what's going on here. Right. Uh, which then leads itself to this idea of that, like, that quote that just because you're not paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. <laughs> like, maybe witches actually exist because mythologically there's a lot of these ideas of night flight, not inhuman things, that their job is to be either amoral or anti-human. Right. Uh, Whereas the the notion, or even merging into Faelor, they can't have their babies, demons can't com, uh, make babies themselves, so they need human women to do it, which plays into fallen walk, uh, fallen angel watcher lore, right? Or that at least that perhaps if these if these women weren't witches, or these men and women weren't witches, that doesn't mean they don't exist. That witches don't exist, and that by com- pushing these things together, we also lose the specificity of discussing them, or even um, through this uh, Western obsession with. Um, Oh, renaming things, kind of um, invoking the patriarchal uh, religions from which they're supposedly rebelling against um, mm-hmm. by colonizing world thought and world traditions mm-hmm. by m- conflating what they imagine is the one truth about witches and what that means into other traditions and cultures as well. Right. Yeah, it's something that I'm always um, kind of antsy around because you get a lot of people who are like, no, 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 it's, these are the misunderstandings about witchcraft, you know, and this is what it really is. Or, you know, it's it's not this intense thing that you're describing and, you know, it doesn't have to be this evil thing. You know, it's always like trying to downplay the, you know, the, the whole like apex predator thing that metaphor I made earlier, right, you know, or the non-human aspects of it, you know, and trying to redeem the things that were called witchcraft, you know, that other people even like you mentioned the, in some case, the actual heresiologist would disagree with right you know but there's this intense sort of like weirdness it's a, it's a kind of colonialism in its own way right i think at least because in when i talk to people about witchcraft in serbia it's very much not only is it real right you know people are like don't, don't even say it you know be very careful um because it's something that 
on the one hand, um, yes, it can be inherited hereditarily. And I love the, the, the whole Watcher lore as well, because, um, Mayas are syncretized with fallen angels. You know, they're these stellar beings that fall for human women. Sometimes men, you know, have children with them, teach them arts and magic and all these other things, you know, and they also weirdly mutate them to be like themselves once they take them back into their world. Um, there's, their gates can be around various different constellations. You know, you have this idea that Lucifer is one of the Tsars of this Mai because he, uh, came as a serpent and seduced Eve, the first Smai bride, you know, and they had Cain together, who was the first Smai Trevik. You get all these interesting metaphors of like the dragon children and, and how Cain is their ancestor, right? But so, yes, and all that's, you know, very fascinating for me. But to take away the, the, the danger that that plays towards the state, toward the, towards um, the church, you know, even when, um, and, and admittedly, you know, Smai's are often celebrated as allies of the saints and the angels. They're not considered to be the same thing as Ishdaya, as the dragons that St. George kills, for example, or St. Martha and St. Marina tame and vanquish, you know, there's still this anxiety around it, right? You know, that this is something that it doesn't care if you're a king and doesn't care if you have an army, you know, it's mm. something that is allied to other forces, but also um, with what I tried to mention before about, you know, negotiating with spirits and, and how the witch is kind of like one of them essentially, right? Is that there's this overall sort of appreciation and understanding that the it's not just about making offerings to the spirit and asking them to do things in return. That's usually the common way a lot of people who don't call themselves folk magicians, who don't call themselves as engaging in magic necessarily, and who don't um, call themselves as being like folk Orthodox, folk Eastern Orthodox, they, this is just what they think is Orthodox, you know, Christianity. That it also includes leaving offerings out for these land spirits and making sure that, you know, your your crops don't get screwed over by the, you know, Polodnica, which Troy and I love to talk about. around something we've talked about recently, too. Yeah. But uh, uh, but in general, like what I'm what I'm getting at too is that you know this is not considered to be necessarily always magic. Um, even though anthropologists will come in and be like, "Oh, you're so you're doing magic," and they'll be like, "No, no, 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 hold on, no, this is just this thing," you know. But for witchcraft, it's very much considered to be it's that force, right? It's struggle, it struggles on the pulse of life, but it also makes it go quicker. You know, mm. be very careful when you manipulate it, right? It's this, it's when you're it's the danger of working with uh, the serpents in the land, right? Because what happens if an earthquake occurs or suddenly this place is tainted forever because of some evil thing you've done there? You know, it's this um, this uh, strain of people who cho- willingly choose to, again, it, there's a danger in not surviving initiations if there are initiations involved, you know. Mm-hmm. It's um, the strain of they could go out and do that and come back and now they have to hide it and they have to be smart about it, but they also um, can go, um, can be lost in the unfamiliar of the world because something becomes familiar to them in a completely different way. It's a totally different way of seeing the world and relating to other spirits to the point where, and this is what I wanted to kind of get to, is that... Um, uh, for for like uh, people who are considered folk magicians or sorcerers in in the Balkans, as, to my understanding, of course, um, given the areas I'm from, it's you can fear them because of the spirit allies that they have and the powers that they have because of them, right? You know, but a witch is feared. Um, the spirits will fear her because of what she is as well. So she can intimidate other spirits with fear because of what she represents and how her relationship with the world is. Mm. To to revisit something that you hinted at that I know <laughs> talked about because it's worth making enemies over this concept of folk Orthodox or folk Catholic. I identify as folk Catholic, but not because of there's this, there's a, a, a trend that's evolving of people that were never raised Catholic and never Catholic to begin with. that are saying that they're folk Catholic to which my answer is Catholic. And then there's folk Catholic, which is a set of practices and styles of operating within a Catholic paradigm and framework 
that is described as full Catholic as perhaps an anthropological nod to the fact that you are not in agreement with the papal seat of Rome's idea of what catechism is. And so it's the, what is full Catholicism? It's Catholicism practiced in a non-standard way, which the standard of that is like, how are you a Catholic? Well, there's eight holy days of observation. There's going to church on Sundays. There's the sacraments of baptism, confirmation, confession. Um, and, and going from there, the Catholicism as a culture is a culture. You are the, the, the nature of a culture is that you must be raised within it or suddenly transplant yourself to be raised by it. And the notion of learning this from books, which is inherently anti-Catholic, interestingly, to be so developed that it's only coming from books, that the practice that the, this doesn't make sense because the Catholicism is nothing without its universalism where the book is a, a figure within it. The authority of the, of the written word and of the papal bullshit um, are, are markers of Catholicism. But that like in, in throughout the world, these, these practices that are done, it is folk magic that is done in a Catholic universe or folk magic that is done in an orthodox universe. Therefore, it is not necessarily possible to be a convert to folk Catholicism or suddenly start practicing folk Catholicism. You're practicing folk Catholic magic, perhaps, but you are not necessarily a folk Catholic that, that, that many of us. I know have used the term to describe our practices because what are you going to say when uh, you know I want to offer blood sacrifice to a saint, um, and and what is this and what are the Iberian practices there that influence those ideas that are hybridizations from Muslim and heretical practices that are, are not acknowledged by the church as proper Catholic anymore, but this notion of folk is an interesting thing because oftentimes what it means is now. It's, it, it, it feels almost like a core shamanism argument that like, I want to do whatever the fuck I want and I still want to have Jesus in it, so I'm going to call it folk Catholicism. As opposed to a culturally contextualized understanding of a paradigm, it needs to, to um, keep the people sustained and people's practice and engagement with a universe that is ultimately Catholic because that is the political description and, and um, naming power of authority in the land itself. My rant against this can even be traced back to like the the Cyprianic reemergence that happens, and I say reemergence because the West may have had a Cyprian ex- uh, obsession the way that Latin America has seemingly had one for four hundred years, or Eastern Orthodox areas have had one for uh, continuously. Um, that the the Anglophonic rediscovery of a tradition again, this Anglophonic Western mentality that when you discover something like I don't know two continents, um, that somehow <laughs> uh, it's new. Um, and, and, you know, <laughs> embracing the term new world, which I will, I, I will backtrack and say my modern distaste in using the word Anglophonic is a modern parallel to that. I understand that it was an Italian that was in the name of the Spanish crown that came here and, and, and named two continents in the, in the, in the name of the new world. Um, but that was just because he was an idiot and thought he was somewhere else. Um, <laughs> that said, it, it's an interesting parallel to all of this and how complicated it is for those people that whose practices are being mined for information. And it's hard as someone who loves 90s chaos magic and understands that a witch seizes power wherever they can. Um, not necessarily the witches that steal the baby souls and things like that, but like more conglomerate ideas or, or modernized versions of witchcraft, but that a magician or someone is has will see power and try to take it. But also, what is the responsibility when you call yourself something like folk Catholic that you are not familiar with Catholicism on that level, that somehow never having sat through masses in that way that suddenly mem- it's just, it's weird to me. And I, it's weird because the, the Catholic elitist to me wants to bear its teeth 
which is not necessarily what I want to represent or am I even about? So I have to check that of what is it? What is this, this need to like, if you ask some of the women that I trained with as the, their curanderas, I call them curanderas. They would not refer to themselves as curanderas because why? That is a title that is earned and a reputation because you healed people or brought people back mm-hmm. from the dead. Mm-hmm. Right. Not because you were putting it on a business card, not because you took a class, not because you suddenly have an interest that you're suddenly a curandera. And furthermore, the only time that they might say that they were a curandera was when someone accused them of being a bruja. Of yeah. being yes. Because yes. this mm-hmm. would get you stapled inside your house and set on fire. Mm-hmm in regional areas up until the Llewellyn injection of the 1990s idea of Western Wicca and witchcraft and neo-paganism that demanded that the entire world bow to the published account of Western white ideas of what witchcraft is post-1950s Wicca. Precisely. And that's what I meant by it's kind of colonialism. Um, yes. And, it's, and, and the reason I even bring it up is because talking about witch and, and sorcerer and folk magician, right? You know, uh, the whole like hiding it, not uh, showing that you're that, uh, masquerading as a folk magician. But even so, like a lot of these things are um, very much like if you have a problem physically, you go to this woman who will heal you, right? You know, and she doesn't have that reputation for nothing, uh, whether it's spirit alliances or just the history of her healing, you know, it's in the way that, you know, it's a, it's the craft part of witchcraft, you know, it's like, if I need something made for me, you know, I'll go to the silversmith, you know, if I need this done, you know, I'll go to this person who specializes in this craft, right? You know, so it's a, it's a title that's earned over time because the person has consistently been able to perform a particular service for the community and living in that community. In this case, um, you know, in Serbia, especially Eastern Orthodox, you know, it's the assume the worldview, the way that like the mentality dominates everyone is this kind of Christianity, right? You know, with saints and and with relics, you know, with icons and with these particular, uh, with the feast days, with the, and I'm thinking a lot about the Zadoshnitsa recently. These are like the four uh, days of the dead across the year. Recently, we had Mitrovska Zadoshnitsa, which are the most important ones. It's uh, usually November 2nd. It's the Saturday before Mitrovdan, which is December 8th. And you have, you know, people burying animals alive in graves with people uh, in order to do certain things. You can have them offering jito or kolyevo, these um, sort of grain uh, cakes, you know, drizzled in beeswax candles to the dead to placate them. And you have all these different things that can occur. And when I talk about this with people, especially, um, you know, uh, people here, they'll be like, oh, um, you know, well, what's so Christian about the animal sacrifice part? What's so Christian about the whole watching butterflies come out of graves to see if, who's a vampire or leading a black horse over graves to see if anyone accidentally became a vampire when you weren't looking, you know? And it's just mm-hmm. like, well, that makes perfect sense in the Orthodox mentality. And so I don't, um, we, in our own, like, discourse of anthropology, it's in Eastern Europe, it's often called, like, um, duonoveri, like, two-faith or double-faith. Um, as like the answer to folk Catholicism or, you know, um, but even so, no one calls themselves that, right? You know, no one in there will, will identify as that. It's useful knowing how to talk about on like the meta scholarly level uh, to discuss, you know, how these people who think that they're totally right with the church and even their church often, the villages will be like, oh, I can't solve this problem and neither can the saint. Maybe you should go to this woman who happens to, uh, her husband's a werewolf or she's married to a dragon and she can fix your problem. Right. You know, it's this interaction. It's like, okay, if we can't fix it, someone else will. There's these a communion of powers who can intercede and they're present and they're real and they're part of the social makeup of the society of the village. Mm-hmm. Totally. You know, but on the other hand, too, is, is this notion that, you know, no one thinks they're a heretic. 
you know, until people come in and accuse them of it, right? You know? And so, and even then it's like, no, 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 no. That's, I'm not doing magic. I'm, I'm doing healing with this saint and not mentioning that he, you also see him as a lycanthrope, you know, who rides through the night with a horde of wolves who may be your ancestors that have to be punished because they weren't, you know, such and such. And they ended up making bargains for things. And now they follow him in the train of wolves for back to trains and riding on coattails, you know, and mm-hmm. you have to offer them mm-hmm. the first lamb of the season. Otherwise they'll come after you, you know? And so on. And, but it's this idea, it's like uh, needing to hide these practices. You know, it, now you can put on business cards, you know, but even said in a lot of these communities, it's like, it's such a taboo because it's layers and layers of, of meaning and myth that can compact it in these instances of these ritual actions of power. And everyone thinks they're doing, they're just proper Christians, you know, even when they completely talk about um, older pagan god names. Yeah, where they talk about um, spirits that are that are, are not originally, and this is the whole thing with syncretism, right? Spirits that are not originally considered to be Christian now are Christian, and that's imposed on them, and they have to live with that change. You know, this um, is comparable. It's not always the case, but syncretism mm-hmm. is well. Let's take its definition: it is the exertion of a dominant cultural influence upon a lesser cultural influence, and the combination or the subjugation by the the dominant for the lesser. And this in some ways, and I think accurately by many people, has compared been compared to rape and the children of rape. Mm -hmm. That there is this force that comes in and completely obliterates through disease, through conquering, through through language shift. All these things happen at once. And the idea of masking, which is a very common thing in magic of like we mask as good citizens, whether you are or not, because that's how you want to get along. And I don't mean we in the sense I'm not going to say that I'm uh, let's leave me out of this, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but this idea at the same time of, you know, I, I make this argument in this way all the time, like perhaps maybe you walk around your own house naked and that's good. Cause you like being naked. You like to feel the, the wind beneath your labia and your wings and all these <laughs> things. But if you walk out in the street in that way, there's an understanding that social contract will make you get arrested mm-hmm. because that is not everything. Something somebody agrees upon in society. So there's this contract that gains you power to not be arrested. And this embracing of social contract, keeping up appearances, keeping up with the Kardashians, whatever the fuck we're calling it, is a way in which to gain power as well. Social contract is a way to gain power. It does not mean it is just a prison. Similarly, engaging in the the dominant worldview can be an act of complacence, an act of protection and survival at first. But the children of those things, when you get to the to first the the pigeon and then the creolization, if we're going to use language metaphor, there's often used in hybridization talk. Um not just plant baby hybridizations, but to talk about what it means for the children of the children of the people that first encountered this wave of conquest that comes in and changes idea, whether that's a, a new scientific discovery that takes a couple years to kind of go back on. I just saw this article with Rosemary is no longer its own genus. Rosemary okay. is now officially Salvia. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Salvia Rosmanaris, Rosmarinus now. It's no longer Rosmarinus officinalis. This is going to fuck with people. But mm-hmm. like, the British gardens are already starting to change it because we're scientifically, there's not enough distinction between the, 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 the genuses, Gina, Gina, something mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. to be distinct and, or Pluto not being a planet that sometimes you just got to wait for people to die out. That they're, <laughs> that they're grasping onto it with their little dragon, witch claws, um, <laughs> like what that is. And similarly, I just, I find these notions of, all of these things so complex that like we can get into semantical, semantical, sem- semantical, sem- something semantical sure. of can you be, is there such a thing as folk Catholicism versus folk Catholics? Or are you practicing folk Catholicism? Um, or is it folk ma- like that gets into semantics? So I want to avoid that trap because my brain will justify it either way, because that's what I like to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but the notion ultimately 
that, that a folk Catholic doesn't know they're folk Catholic. It is an extreme point of privilege for me to be able to label myself as such mm-hmm. um, based on trying to justify myself and my practices over the years to occultists who will say there's no such thing as Christian witchcraft. It was like, you know, in the West, there's technically only Christian witchcraft. Right. The language problems there, but we'll, that's a whole other discussion there. But the idea that, that this reclamation of, uh, of a pagan witchcraft past complicates things, but then we also have to let go of the fact that um, this uh, this proclamation that that Christianity prohibits magic in that way, which is not necessarily true. In fact, we just we know that, or this show wouldn't exist as far as saints being interwoven into demons and and plants and and um, yes, um, <laughs> out of jobs that we created for ourselves that don't pay us anything else. But yeah, sorry, it, it's it's I've talked about this a lot with both of you individually, and I think together, and it's it's one of those things that I, I'm not. I want to move away from saying. Scrooge McDucking it and being like, ah, nah, 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 Robin, mm-hmm. get off my lawn. You, you know, it's because people are just going to say, okay, okay, boomer to me. But um, at the <laughs> same time, there's something that should be embraced here of the point of privilege of calling yourself a folk Catholic and being able to label yourself that when the practices that are being talked about are just Catholic body of lore and magic that we are attributing as folk Catholic. So it's this interesting thing of like, even the concept of witchcraft, that these things that are called witchcraft that are in the trial records as witchcraft, if we go into like Isabel Gowdy and, and as we were talking about, like at the, we're listening to about me, I was listening to you talk about this and many other things um, at the Cornwall conference this year. Uh-huh. Uh, Isabel Gowdy's transcript is where a lot of our ideas of witchcraft come from, as especially as promulgated by Wicca, the right. numbers of people in a coven and how that operates and these things like this which has colored our entire idea, which then we Mandela effect and go back and put upon all of history mm-hmm. yeah. and say that it must be this. It, it, it's like a Murrayist fallacy gone crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, I would love Murray to be real, uh, but she's not. There's no historical evidence for it. Um, change my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps over a detour well, I think most, most obviously as well, to, to echo your point, right, we're back to that notion of uh, talking over the people that you're purportedly wanting to learn from, right? Mm-hmm. The, the more we muddy the waters with taking on uh, labels or titles or practices devoid from their cultural, social, political, economic contexts, uh, the more we flatline potentially and the more difficult it becomes to actually preserve and celebrate these traditions very often. I think it, it reminds me of the tendency of when one has little knowledge, one defends little knowledge with great zeal. And I think it's a pattern that we all have experienced on and perhaps participated in that when you learn to label something or start to explore something that you want to see that thing everywhere. And so it, it is, I understand the tendency but also the people who might know a little bit about a specific set of folk magic that then go online and poo-poo the things that don't fit into their idea of what that mold is, mm-hmm. uh, that then don't allow for a polyvalent existence of what that practice is. And, and Katharina, you and I have talked about this quite a bit mm-hmm. with an understanding of, of a tradition that um, I think there is some in me personally, I would, I would theorize that there might be something into it with this kind of monotheistic tendency of being the one right way. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that somehow right belief is the, is the thing mm-hmm. and that um, you're from Serbia. Great. I, uh, uh, Serbia, I want you to tell me, is it, is it like, I heard about this other practice and you would be like, I mean, that has nothing to do with, I know, but sure that's not, it could be, 
you know, <laughs> in, 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 in Afro diaspora traditions, there could be a temple on one side of the street in Brazil that practices a specific way of doing Gandomle. And it could be the same Nassau nation that, and the same lineage, but the temple across the street does things differently. Why are a different temple? Exactly. Uh, and that diversity of practice is actually a sign of a, of a thriving ecology of spirit very often, yes. right? Yes. I brought up like the whole different like names that are used in regional mm. variants for the same practice, right? You know, um, to uh, sometimes I read a, a German ethnographers going into Serbia talking about these things, right? And they're like, oh, these are different uh, forms uh, of the same thing or these are completely different practices, right? You know, which, you know, we can debate the etymology of aspect of it, but at the end of the day, like, what are they doing and, and how are they doing and how did they get there? So like, I... Um, even like Balkans is a huge, you know, part of the map, you know, but Serbia itself, you know, uh, changing borders and all like there's villages will do things very differently from each other, you know, especially given that um, the fact that they're sprawling and they're not actually centered around a main uh, square. And then two is like, when you marry into someone else's family, you suddenly discover like they've been doing uh, the whole Mitrovska Zadarsnitsa festival completely differently. And there's no, there tends not to be an anxiety around it in the same way because there's this recognition that things are just happening differently in other places, right? So on the other hand, it's not like um, even the words my is, is com- interpreted differently um, in different that places, can- right? Which is great because that means that, you know, people mm-hmm. are interacting with this differently. It doesn't mean that they're right and I'm wrong or I'm wrong and they're, or I'm right and they're wrong. It, it's not a question of being right necessarily, right? There's- or like, because there's a, my biggest issue with this is what happens when, and I, I love books. I'm in university. I'm in a PhD program. You know, I like to write. But when you put things in a book, it, it in a way becomes sacred in a different way. Where it's like you come into, I, I remember reading uh, Stefania Capone's book on Candomblé, right? So what happens when people want to initiate into uh, one particular temple and they're like, wait a second, this ethnographer did this, you know, research here. And um, you guys aren't doing it the way that he wrote about it. So is it real? You know, I want to go to the other temple where they do it this way, you know, and it's this anxiety of like what happens when something gets put into a book and now that's the way things are. You know, I try and mm-hmm, I try and insist so much that, you know, oral lore is, is, is this precious thing that it's going to change. It's going to be different. I can only offer my perspective, my experience of the, my family, the village that I'm from, you know, and the people around it and the people I've spoken to. Right. And it's great to cross, you know, cross reference and so on. But there's a reason these things are living. The whole like point we made about, you know, you don't know your folk Catholic or Orthodox or whatever, you know, people are living these things. You can you can. It's not this like sort of sabbat or esbat that you, you you plan for months in advance and then you you make it this one thing and you follow a script. It's it's it can be very organic, you know. And people live with the consequences of that in their village because they're not leaving the area, you know. And it's it's permeating through the culture in a way that when you come in and you want to have the title of a tradition and you want to you know put it on I don't know like your your Instagram uh, you know description and and you want to say this is what I do and this is what I practice. It's just like well maybe you should go and and, and talk among these people that you're you know valoring in this way and, and see what their opinions are before you start making this to you know what that really means for you because you read a few books right for sure there is a very different relationality to authenticity when you're like we're on the land like we're doing the thing that people have been doing here for a very long time you know it, it's not so important to us or we may have a very different reason why you know our ribbons are green and blue rather than green and red right uh uh, there's a very different notion of, you know, what's authentic practice uh, that when it's um, when it's taken out of its context, right? That the 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 adherence to a, a set of um, checklists from an anthropologist becomes um, forefronted, perhaps even overemphasized, right? 
because you're desperately trying to do the thing outside of uh, of understanding the the wider or the deeper roots that have uh, uh, nourished it. Two things that makes me jot down. Um, one, uh, building on that Kundam Lake idea you're talking about, it was famous for years that Mayra um, uh, Santo would not show another devotee inside their temple that wasn't from the temple, but they would show an anthropologist because that meant that it would be documented mm-hmm. and right. minimize their own temple. Yeah, this parallel notion of the Asogwe effect, as it's lovingly referred to by mm-hmm. of that, you know, going in and documenting Vudu in Porto Prince in the, in the, in the 20s in Haiti and documenting the Asogwe tradition, which was a minority tradition by accounts. And that after that point, after the publishing of this, that everyone had to get Asogwe. And you had to say you were an Asogwe lineage or at least go get it and exchange traditions with people that were in an Asogwe lineage because you were Chacha and you were doing things differently. Mm-hmm. And this notion that, again, you've got to keep up with the Joneses. And this happens constantly in uh, in Brazil, whether it's Kimbanu, Umbanda, Kachimbo, Batuki, Kandumule, the different versions of what these things are, Santo um, uh, Daime, of, of you got to appear as the most common on-trend thing if you want to get butts in the seat. Now, if you don't want to get butts in the seat, you can do whatever the hell you want. Mm-hmm. So there's this notion of nosa, you know, our way of doing things. But it also, I have a question for the two of you, just so that I can let you defend it, of what is the relationship between wanting to accept polyvalent approach as natural, as as the normal way of the universe, and then wanting to call people out on <laughs> saying things like, you know, that they practice something that is like, but this, you just created something out of whole cloth. That, that, that lacks context within that. What is the relationship between those things? And how are we not just the hypocrites we normally are by talking about these things both at the same time? <laughs> oh, it, Burning in hell. The, the perennial uh, tension, I think, in, in this, because on the one hand, like I'm very fond of seeing how things develop, right? You know, and, and, and despite, you know, like, Yes, a lot of these things that I mentioned, some of this folklore is is definitely pre-Christian. You know, uh, the more I talk with Jesse, the more I realize it's like it's pre this region even, you know. Um, but it's at the same time, it is now syncretized. You know, it, it, there's these new changes that have come. We interpret them, the, the whole mention of the, the Orthodox worldview or the Christian worldview, like everything. Uh, dragons are Christian now, you know. Same as the old boss type of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so everyone is interpreting in this kind of economy. And, and the social reality of these spirits, you know. So that's one thing. On, on the other hand is, you know, there's what's misinterpretation because of inexperience uh, and only book reading. You know, like I read these uh, 10 books on by on traditional witchcraft and in scare quotes that someone recommended to me on a blog post and now I'm a witch, you know, um, versus, <laughs> you know, doing what we were talking So Because like, honestly, like I, I really relate to what you mentioned about the, the chaos magic thing. Like I want to live and let live very much, you know. But at the same time, it's this it's this tension of wanting to defend my snobbishness, I guess, around this idea. So I think that um, on on the one hand, <laughs> we're all just snobs in a hot tub. We are, so yeah. So just, uh, uh, I, I think there is something really to the um, to the idea of like being aware of the cultural context of things because the culture will change, right? You know, by definition, it will it will evolve and it'll take on new things with, with migrant groups, with new attitudes, with with new books that come in. You know, the the, the way that the landscape of uh, what magic is understood to be in uh, city centers like Belgrade and Serbia has changed a lot because of Salima, uh, Golden Dawn. You know, like these things being translated. But so at the same, even pronounce a Latin J as an actual J. <laughs> Has this just been like eating you up inside, like how I've been pronouncing it for as long as we've known each other? Actually, you rarely <laughs> pronounce the figures' names. That's true. Stuffing. 
That's true. Yeah. Mm. They flash me a hand sign and I'm seeing their counting things. <laughs> <laughs> and because I like the, I like referring to them in English. I think this is a wonderful practice too, precisely because of those things too. Um, of 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 throwing the the baby out with the bathwater and just being like, fuck it, um, conjunction or Congress or whatever these things mm. are, holy conflation. Um, <laughs> and because I don't pronounce my name Yesi unless I'm speaking in Spanish. So mm-hmm. you know, it's all it's all in jest, but it's a good one because it makes me happy to get out. Um, hackles race. Uh, <laughs> but like, that's the thing. I think there really is something to be gained in, in showing up uh, to these places that, you know, you're interested in and actually like seeing what it's about, you know, people um, uh, like practicing a witchcraft of a place they've never been to, you know, or saying that they do. I think it, it's an importance, right? You know, you... Sephiroth uh, of Wales or... <laughs> or Cornwall. Yes, thank you. Right. So I think it's, you know, like with with the... This came in the house, you know, like show, showing up at your house and learning it, you know? Versus as lovely it is as it is reading, you know, books or, or practicing information that you've taken home. I, I think there's something really essential that I feel clicking when I'm being introduced to a, a culture and a worldview that's, that's quite different, you know, and seeing how it operates in the little moments. It doesn't seem too esoteric, right? You know, it like the, the fact that, you know, a lot of this folk Christianity stuff doesn't seem like it's this ooh spooky magic, you know, and, mm. and when you're there, right, it's like, wait a second, this woman was just, you know, washing this pot and say, muttering this thing. Well, what was that? You know, mm. and like you really kind of to... Um, I, I just think it's so essential to, um, it, you can be changed too, right? You know, you can be molded by a culture that you become adopted by, you know? Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's important to be the real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think taking on of a cultural practice or a culturally embedded practice, which in truth, most things are. And if you don't know what culture your practice is embedded in, then look closer. Um, yeah. It probably means that it just isn't too different from modern atheistic, materialistic, Western psychological framework that most modern magic finds itself in mm-hmm. um i i it, it it evokes automatically to me the the tarot trump that we have selected for the day which is the hangman mm-hmm. state of liminality of mm-hmm. um you know if it do, does to, does go towards odin and the the gaining knowledge by suspending yourself in neither this nor that the notion of hybridity and the the divine man um divine bear the divine god divine man like this this of uh, what this is the nature of these things that is both uh, to be uh, both human and not human. And then the, the notion of, of betrayal that is invoked by the hangman of it being Judas as well. Right. It's interesting thing of like, what did you do for this? And what does it mean in this um, judific act of, of um, are you the most devout believer? Like, are you, you know, is it this kind of neo-gnostic interpretation that Judas is actually Jesus's man that was chosen for the job to, to go down in infamy, but, make sure that the martyrdom happened or is it actual betrayal or is it, what is it? Those, these different things are, are there. And then uh, even the notion of the, the, the uh, St. Peter was crucified upside down um, because he could not be, he, he said he was not worthy to be him killed as Jesus was. So I don't know. It, it's interesting there, right? Of, no, Jesse, that's the inverted cross of the cliff off. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, but really it shows that it's the reflection, right? Cause he's mm-hmm. still upside down. <laughs> um, human beings don't walk on their heads usually um unless i went to college with you in which case we might have had a class or two together um, <laughs> yeah I, I mean the hangman is is there or or the the idea of the condemned man and what this means um or the plant that bows its head um that there's a nature of change perhaps well taking the uh the gestation and and birth analogies with uh, uh conjunctio yeah. and uh Kaka, right? Seeing the hanged man upside down as the 
as the baby, right? Uh, okay. All all amniotic, right? That uh, and this is this is backed up by you know by some Hebrew by letter attributions. By truth, it be well <laughs> by truth, yeah, by the truth that some people say that it's uh, because it's associated with Mem, the the letter of primal water, obviously the 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 term for a mom in in a more familial uh, context, uh, and that yeah, the that which is. Uh, uh, like eternally dreaming, right? The the the, the being that is not quite yet, uh, that is that is nascent, that is that is forming, uh, that is uh, collecting the the runes of a of a consciousness to be able to like understand the world when it emerges and is is pushed out. Mm-hmm. Something that just came to me because um, this is, uh, this is one of the threads that we've been following, right? Is the what is what is your eye that you're giving up for the runes? You mm. know, what is the witch? Or the would-be witch um, sacrificing. How do we sacrifice um, in, to ourselves? Yeah, to ourselves yeah. in order to gain this. And, and the pieces of you that you are losing forever, the parts of you that make you human, you know, that mm-hmm. you are losing. Or even like um, in the case of the marriages, you know, what are you losing because of this immense pact that you take on that dominates the rest of your life and makes you into a weird social creep, you know, that um, mm-hmm. is now making you just kind of off-putting and strange in all these different ways, even to other people who use magic, you know. And then the fact is like the potential for madness there, the potential for great illumination, you know, and the fact that, you know, the erotic elements to it that make you like transcend certain states, but then also make every return to the body when you fall back into your skin more alien and sometimes more mm-hmm. repulsive, you know, it's, it's what is the sacrifice? And I think when we're talking about, you know, adoption and, and cultural legacies and what does it mean to really take on a, a tradition that you weren't raised in, or, you know, I think one thing we can think about is the sacrifice that is being made, you know, because there always is. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the honesty of kind of confronting that, you know, in terms of like, what are you willing to take on? And also, um, as opposed to a title, you know, and, right. a, and you know, a few dollars sent to Amazon to buy some books so you can sure. cite them in groups and, you know. And, and, and a sense that, and a sense that, however well you learn the languages and and sacrifice, that there will always be a sense that you are um, somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel that as an immigrant, frankly, like you know the way that I yeah. uh, speak Serbian now, um, you know, it's <laughs> a little bit different than the way that people speak it back home. You know, even though it is fluent, and just like the the weird code switching that occurs in not totally notice should I, should, I, should I be polite in Canadian or polite in Slavic? <laughs> <laughs> it's, but immigration uh, is an adoption too, right? So it's it's yeah. just that thing that I'm thinking of is like the, the sacrifice that is made. What is lost, right? Something is lost, but what is yeah. gained? Well, yeah. the, the Do the Canadian government have any of your blood? No comment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Smeared across the Capitol building. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I, I love this met- metaphor of immigration in this way because I think this one of the things that is given up when you go into a, a culturally Im- embedded tradition that you are not born to, or even if it's in your own culture, but you didn't necessarily grow up with that tradition, yeah. which is its own thing. And there are different levels there of um, the kind of gradual law. I mean, the, the sudden loss of identity and security in what your identity and stability is will be evident. So you can be, it, it, I see this all the time in uh, friends who are coming into, to let's say, Lukumi, and they are practicing magicians and something else. Um, and they are extremely knowledgeable experts in their field of, of an academic subject or whatever it is. But you come into a culturally embedded tradition like this, which is heavily oral, even though there's lots of things written, they have to completely accept that they are coming in from the viewpoints of elders that have 80 years of practice of the tradition and living it that they are nobody. Mm-hmm. 
And that shift is extremely hard for people. Um, it, as it should be, because the first few times you do it, it's just like, wait, what do you mean? Like I've spent my whole life on this identity, this loss of identity that comes in, which is necessary for growth. It's the whole thing of no wine can be added to a cup that's already full. Mm-hmm. So this, I think it's an interesting metaphor in that way that immigration wise, this notion of, is there a possibility for dual citizenship? Is there not? Is there this idea that you have to um, prove that you're not going to be a burden upon the group that you're coming into? Are you going to contribute to the group you're trying to join, not just gain the benefits of being that? Mm-hmm. That notion of it is often forgot when coming into a tradition. This, what mm-hmm. do I bring to it? What okay. can I mm-hmm. do for it? That side of it, it's just, it's a fascinating metaphor to explore with the whole process too of like being judged and being told that you're worthy of being in the group as well, which happens with a lot of notions um, across the board of, of, you know, do you speak the language? Do you have a job? Are you productive? Did you come here for marriage? And did you really marry the person so that you could get into the country? Or did you marry them out of love? In which case, why didn't they go to your country? And what's so, you know, that mm-hmm. whole process that goes with that, 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 that takes away and eats away its stability, of which mm-hmm. ego is a, is a natural fighter. Mm-hmm. For Huge thing in my family, when you come over with a PhD, that's not recognized, right? Yes. Not the right university, you know, never mind, you can't be this thing anymore. Go find a different job. And you might be lucky and find someone or a group that can help guide you in and at least advocate and discuss your expertise, background, and knowledge and help you go in that way. Or you might find someone that doesn't care at all, mm-hmm. in which case you have to, 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 to met that somehow. You mm-hmm. have to, you have to, that friction is unique to every person coming into a tradition. Yeah, and and speaking to sort of the, the thing we are mentioning with like folk Christianity and so on, right? You know, is this notion of if it's not the culture you were raised in, you know, why not begin by going to church, you know, yeah. and uh, seeing what it's like to take confession, you know, for the yeah. first time, or or learn these songs and, and and learn the movements behind it, and learn what happens afterwards and before, you know, all these protocols and so on, because that's and also what are you bringing to it, right? I think it's an interesting question to always keep in mind when when looking at these things, because you know I am so fascinated by so many different things, and um, I'm I'm so privileged to be learning things that are completely outside of my cultural view and expertise, but I'm also like relearning things from my own culture by talking to people from a quarter of the country that I'd never been to, even though it's not a long drive, you know, mm. or, or, or in the dialects that they speak that are different and the way they conceive of, of, of fairies, for example, or, you know, like, for example, like learning that there are possessions that are regular and can be scheduled by fairies in certain parts of Eastern yeah, Syria yeah. and the falling women, you know, and the little padwits as they're called, you know, it's like, well, I didn't know that existed until very recently. Now it's like, okay, well, aren't you from that culture? It's like, I'm not from that part of the country, you know? So it's, right, it's this constant right. negotiation, right? You know, is that one thing I stress is, you know, it, you know, it will sell um, uh, books and, and it'll be nice, you know, on resumes and so on to be like, yeah, I'm talking about this region, which is totally true. Right. You know, and it can have its own things, but then like, you may not be aware of what the village is doing, you know, um, you may not be aware of the nuances behind it, and that's it's lovely, but it's this constant like it's never quite stable. And I'm very fascinated by the instability of it, the fire that the tests and provokes, you know, uh, pokes at you wherever you go to realize like you're not as firm in your knowledge as you thought you were, but that's a good thing because you're always learning and growing. And I think that people should kind of, at least I hope to, you know, take that into account when looking at things that are foreign and, and realizing that, yes, you know, Christianity is this massive force that dominates so many parts of the world. But like, you know, Catholicism and Orthodoxy, those things are like, are, are a culture. They're not just a book that you read, you know, and as a result, it's necessary to engage with it on its own terms. 
um, no, mm. no matter uh, what your background is. And even if, you know, a few generations before, you know, someone in your family was from one of these cultures, it doesn't guarantee that you necessarily always know everything from it, right? You know, like, I'm sure, like, I, I meet friends who, you know, uh, are third or fourth generation, you know, Serbian, and they know a lot of things, but like, they learn about these things through reading books in English, right? Which is a very different, and then they think that like, um, you know, this term that I'm using for this kind of folk magician is a universal throughout the country, but it really only accounts for like these three villages in the Northwest. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of those things, I think we we may have mentioned this with Stegaria, right? You know, yep. it's, it's just this like relearning of things, but on its own terms. Uh, you remind me of, and, and jumping off things earlier, like the, the many discussions about, um, and the writings are brilliant and she's a really lovely person, but Gemma Gary uh, at no point says that it's an extant Cornish tradition, but many Americans treat it as if it is. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it evokes the um, uh, the notion that you've talked about, Al, of the 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 Sfirot of of, of Wales or <laughs> the right. Isle of Kent. Yeah. yeah. Then you're like, yo, I can drive there. It's just down the road from me, and it's still full of sheep and miners. So where is this like utopian witch village that you're saying that all these witches exist in that you can just walk down the street and be initiated into something? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, right. Fantastical validation of self perceptions of identity. Is nothing new to 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 anything, let alone witchcraft and the magical tradition. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, speaking on that, I guess as a, a, a sigui, um, uh, I'll find some way to sigui back to the the demon. But uh, the witch of Endor, I think, is this interesting side of it too. That you know, in, in building off of this idea of going to someone, but not necessarily wanting to, you go to them as a last resort, as they they are outside the the norm or the structure of the stability of the universe, as you might know them. Um, and so the witch of Endor being is, um, and, and, and despite my, my wish for her to be an Ewok, um, <laughs> uh, this is indeed, uh, 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 to summon, uh, when, when Saul, um, interesting cause we were talking about Paul earlier, but, right. uh, uh, we're dealing with, uh, the idea of summoning the shade of the prophet Samuel to yeah. tell him what to do. And it's, um, first book of Samuel, I believe, uh, the, the battle with the Philistines is going poorly and his attempt to cast lots had already failed and to talk to other prophets had our the living prophets had failed the lord answered him not neither by dreams nor by urim nor by prophets yeah Mm -hmm. and so this need to go to the witch comes in and this is the thing of like there we can debate like what exactly this word is that's used for witch uh, because it it certainly has been heavily talked about right Uh, uh, by the uh, by, the King James version, it's uh, it's a woman that hath a familiar spirit. Interestingly, uh-huh. or at least in English, yeah. And most theaters like of, of this kind were already driven out of Israel. Yeah. So it's like, where do we find this person who can do it? It has to, you know, Saul does it in disguise. That she is the woman who possesses an ob at Endor, mm-hmm. right? And that ob might be translated as familiar. It might be translated to a pit that she has a necromancy pit, which is fascinating. And please, just like. If this is historical, please build the time machine that I can go back and see what she's doing. Well, there's uh, the notions that it's ventriloquism as well, right? Or related to speaking from the stomach. Yes. Right? There's that great um, article, I can't remember who it's by, on exactly that, right? W- uh, voices coming from different places or something around, you know, um, listening to one's gut feeling. Uh, yeah, that this would so close to a the, spe- the, the specificity of what that was. Uh, to the writers, and yet so far from what that might mean. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 it reminds me of a couple of things. One, like, oh, sign puppetry, right? Of, of the mm. dog in for you. Um, but um, 
also the the false unicorn horn in the uh, last unicorn that that people don't recognize what's what's real. They might mm. they might not be able to hear the disincarnate voices, so you have to give the voice. Like, what is it to be channeling something mm. for an entity that no one else can hear? Yeah. Um. So you end up having to speak with a voice that is different, or 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 put on a show, um, even mm-hmm. if accurate um, already. That even if it's true, the communication is there um, in in our various um, endorsements of our own realities. But uh, you know, this that that side of it is always interesting to me with her. And also her, that Saul goes to her in disguise reminds me heavily of Odin going to the Cirrus um, uh, in disguising his his image to to ask if basically the events of Ragnarok can be avoided. Right. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, and, you know, tests her with knowledge first or like who are the bail, the, the funeral pyres for. And she knows damn well who it is. Mm-hmm. And then she figures it out like, oh, you are no way tamer. Like mm-hmm. you are Strider, you are Odin and mm-hmm. and you are mother of monsters. Um, mm-hmm. noting her identity and, and referencing these things of like, you are not just the shade of a woman either, that just because I'm seeking the the the, the, the ghost within the hill that gives answers and this this reference kind of Utiseta of sitting on the hill and, mm-hmm. and calling the ghosts up as you sit on that all night through the trials and tribulations of the long night, um, especially in an area where there might not be daylight for, you know, 23 hours. Um, but uh, within the Witch of Endor context of just this I don't know. It's always held fascination with me of like just in, in, in biblical literature classes as a child of like, what do you mean? Do you, how do you, how do you see the, the Elohim arising, for instance? Um, like, what does that mean? What is this <laughs> of, yeah. of, of um, the, the Latin Vulgate, I believe is snake pit um, that it's translated as. So it brings up this whole fascination for me of, of like comparing her to a Rixo and yeah. like pseudo Medusa S um, contemporary pagan stuff that was going on at the time for St. Jerome. Yeah, I mean, the serpent stuff is stuff that Agrippa raises as well when he's talking about um, the Witch of Endor and whether or not it's Samuel or not. And he says, you know, oh, there are, there are plenty of Hebrew masters um, that say that uh, it might actually have been Samuel. They, they don't necessarily dispute that. But he starts talking about when flesh is is left for as meat for serpents, right? And that they they call to it. And they call it, uh, you know, he brings up a Zazel, uh, who he calls the Lord of uh, Flesh and Blood, uh, and the Prince of this World, which I'm I'm, I'm especially interested in in terms of Azazel's links to uh, pulling up dead magicians or, or dead important people, uh, dead advisors, dead you know, tutelary shades, uh, because that's dead magicians comments. That's well, that's exactly what we get later on in uh, in the excellent book. Is uh, Azazel is the, yeah, the yeah. first really, authority? Really that's moving forward and um, if you don't know about it please go visit scarlet imprint uh, because the pre-orders will be up uh within the month and i'm just i'm really excited for you out and everything is thanks out. it's okay. so exciting congratulations yeah. thank uh, you thank you elohim arising is super cool too like the plural right, yeah. verb yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. it's plural right so it's like what does that even mean in this context and i love that we talk that you know one of the things that's always fascinating about the story is that, it, that she's the last resort right you know and yeah. like what i mentioned before with like uh you know like the witch in at least in in the context I'm familiar with is really the last resort. Like you'd rather go to the priest. And then if you can't go to the priest, you go to your healer. If you can't go to the healer, you go to like this, this person who was creepy and born with a call that flies out their right. body on Thursdays or on right. holy days to do literally like fist fight um, <laughs> weather demons. You know, right. it's, it's very so, mortal combat, you know, yeah. and then they come back and they're bruised and tired. And his wife's been swinging a slice over him for the last four hours, praying that no one else tries to take his body while he's gone, you know, all this other stuff. It's great. You know, and then finally, like if you happen to know who, who among you, 
you is one. And there's yeah. always an anxiety is like, is any one of us is? It's like, who is it? You know, it's like, right. you know, it's like when you're bargaining with her, you're bargaining with the, with the spirits, you know, in, mm. in, a, in an unmediated sense, you know, and there's always a risk that, you know, she doesn't like you, she can just put you down herself, you know, and that's just the, uh, even though theaters, again, have powers too. It's just that this is the nature of like what it is versus, you know, um, who who they have contracts with and what they sacrifice to get that. Yeah, less about what the church allows or doesn't allow or what a good Christian does or doesn't do and a lot more about, gosh, again, desperation. The, 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 who, it, who, do you, who do you go to when, when a thing needs doing? And that, that, that fascinates me in terms of how many accounts there are of, uh, of cunning folk butting up against the law and, and the changing laws of the, the various witchcraft acts that come in. Uh, the, the, the instance of someone, uh, I think, being a criminal being declared uh, uh, fled from, from jail um, by the sheriffs and a cunning man turns up to the sheriff's office saying, you know, oh, I'll, I'll do magic to help find him and bring him back. And they have to tell this cunning man that like, that's illegal now. And <laughs> it has been for many, many years. And they, mm. they kind of have to put him in jail about that, and uh, which, the they, which they work out. But mm. yeah, that, that, uh, yeah, that idea that, um, you go to the, the expert you need, not the one you know, that necessarily fits your nice, neat, um, mm-hmm. policy. Yeah. And like, that's really fascinating that you brought that up because like we have examples of of uh, people like Krisniks, for example, or Zuhashi, you know, who I mentioned, you know, call born, they fly out their body, they fight weather spirits. The weather spirits then become like the, the evil ones are then considered to be witches in some, like that's like the rival sorcerer from the village over and you're trying yeah. to steal his fertility. And it becomes this thing. It's like, no, 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 I'm not a witch. I'm the witch hunter. I'm yes. the witch fighter because I leave my body while she leaves her body and we duke it out, you know, and then I come back hopefully victorious you know um, right. and all this sort of stuff and it becomes this thing it's like no no i'm not one of them i'm the one who fights the bad guys the bad magicians who are yeah. witches who are willing to sell their souls for I'm not one of them i'm one of us mm-hmm. yeah yeah mm-hmm. i'm a good christian right yeah <laughs> yeah a witch is always found at the point of an out- extended finger mm-hmm. a witch is the other not mm-hmm. you you know yeah. you don't you're, you're not a witch um i find a few things raised really beautifully by the witch of endor one it's always poked problems in the, the existence of necromancy for christians Yes, mm-hmm. and necromancy is viewed as a a, and it plays into our, what even what the concepts of necromancy are, which is incredibly important for this show. That that necromancy is, of course, dealing dealing with dead people and demons because of the the, the proclivities of the church to say that there is no resurrecting of the dead because this will only occur on Judgment Day or if you're a saint. So you can talk to saints, perhaps, but you can't talk to dead people because it's, it's not Helen of Troy. It's three demons in a Helen of Troy suit. Yes, absolutely. Which you know, sometimes it might be, but this I think <laughs> here that that the legitimacy is here because. Um, uh, when spiritism kind of took huge foothold in Latin America and Mexico was going through, like there was a, there was a spiritist president who like had, had seances every night to determine what his policies were going to be for the next day. And he did pretty well. But um, this discussion of like, what are the, the justifications for spirit contact in this way? You have not only the witch of Endor as a possibility, which also it's interesting because the um, she's used in Mexican folk magic as a guardian, not for the act of invoking the dead, because you can use Jesus for that, because Jesus talked to dead prophets in the Transfiguration on the Mount. Right, right, right. justifies the communication with the dead already. For sure. So what she does do is she helps identify when the client is trying to test you, because Hmm. Saul came in disguise and lied. And Hmm. the Martin Luther translation of this passage is amazing, because he gives credit to the witch that she's not screaming because she sees the spirit. She's screaming because she realized it's the king, and he Hmm. just made all acts of necromancy. Mm. still tries to feed the bastard before he leaves. Yeah. I, I love that she's that hospitable because you must treat guests with hospitality, but also this idea that, you know, she screams because of, of possibly seeing the dead prophet. Um, but it, 
I don't know. It, it's it's very complex in its nature, and she's certainly um, a figure that I think any necromancer should be looking towards. And and I've seen whole arguments and discussions back in the old Yahoo list days, which which will soon be amongst the hallowed dead because in December they're taking all the old Yahoo groups down. Hmm. Um, but there's this whole thing there of uh, well, I guess that that would that is not dead, which can eternal lie, and in uh, hmm. the web, <laughs> web uh, archive you can still find, but. Um, <laughs> I, there's something to her of of being this figure that's incredibly enigmatic. It, she's obviously powerful, um, and she is. He's actively engaging in uh, uh, again going against God because he believes that his law is of God, and um, that the the prophet first is, is upset with Saul for disobeying God, right. and um, and predicts his downfall. Um, and and there's this. I don't know. It's just the. the She's fascinating. And she's accurate, too. Like, yeah. It's not like she's a quack there. No. Far from it. That's the problem. Yeah. She's good at it. But I, I do love this idea of um, you open it up to the passage, and that's what you put the candle on to call her. Um, very, very Mexican way of doing things. Um, mm. There's certain with powders and things like that. But to make sure that you notice the testers when they come, or to have warning when, if you are doing illegal acts of mediumship and things like this that you know when to put to push the button and the bookshelf turns around like hmm. how can this be can she guard this kind of thing is she the jesus malverde of her time wow hmm. uh, uh, of that thing of like can she keep the law away in this way by by hiding um this notion and i find that fascinating yeah fascinating that also the the christian countenance there like reducing the 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 passage to ash and marking the head just like with the ashes or mixed with them the palms of last year as Mm -hmm. a a blessing for the worker that it is Mm -hmm. god sanctioned and that the laws of man will change but the laws of god do not do you Um, get uh do you get the washing the pages we get that a lot with um the gospel of john uh at least yeah across europe of uh of washing the ink off the pages very very carefully that's if you have that (laughs) <laughs> yeah like it, it doesn't work as well with paper um, <laughs> it, it works extremely well with parchment and then you can you know lick the palimpsest clean in my in my normal fantastical um, <laughs> but um you and your palimpsest uh, licking yeah um but uh putting herbs on it or or writing out the passage as much as you can on something uh and then or writing out the words in herbs and that type of thing and and, and lighting the candle and that type of thing is 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 known it's uh, it's a fascinating take more broadly on like christian spirits that aren't saint i mean this is mostly what i've uh I would, i've been thinking about in the context of some of the workings that uh uh our dear friend and uh near do well uh professor porterfield talks about in his sporting life he gives a lot of examples of working with jezebel and other um spirits of powerful women in in in, in various jewish and christian scriptures uh, and they're not they're definitely not saints, right? Uh, but you can still work with them as as uh, as biblical spirits or as spirits of the uh, of the Torah. Uh, well, I, I think, find that fascinating. I think um, common, dare I say, it, folk Catholic expressions of this is that no, but Adam and Eve are saints, and it's not just because of the hallowed ancestors, but like they're anything. They're literally saints. Yeah, yeah. Like they they are in a minor setting, but in modern Catholicism, you don't hear about them as saints because they're pre-Christian. So this this notion that the saints, true saints, are those that die in the name of Christ, and that the the hallowed dead that were or the harrowed dead, we should say, mm-hmm. that were were resurrected, or the good pagans that were resurrected during the harrowing of hell, um, and taken directly into paradise, which leaves 
um, the the prophet's hell or the prophet's limbo empty, mm. which I find is a fascinating thing that that is possibly one of the ways that fairy took over hell. Yeah, um, they yeah. saw an empty place in hell because Jesus took all the good pagans and the and the Jews out, mm-hmm. uh, which is its own amazing thing. I absolutely <laughs> love the, the the Kipling poem um, on the road to Endor is the oldest road and the craziest road of all. Mm-hmm. Uh, straight up runs to the witch's abode and in the days of Saul. And it did in the days of Saul, and nothing has changed of the sorrow in store for such as go down on the road to Endor. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, of course, it, it brings up Endora in, in Bewitched as like a, well, that's a lovely nod to that in that way. Uh, <laughs> so we have to get back to a point around who's deputies. Um, who's deputies? Uh, My the, deputies. Well, yeah, sometimes. Uh, sometimes Aglirept is under Lucifer. They're a common one being if put Satanaki is the first deputy, then Aguirrez will be the second and be under Lucifer. But there are older and different and uh, contingent and parallel uh, manuscript traditions where uh, Lucifer's Rafakali is the, the first deputy of uh, Lucifer, which puts puts Satanaki to the second and shunts Aguirrez over to being under Belzebuth. Uh, and that's the, 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 the working style I'm most familiar with shall we say on a on a practical level uh, i really you know uh i really like thinking about the deputies which are so huge and yes have these um uh offices in the grand grimoire um as as as, as cat just uh, intimated uh, but i also like thinking about them uh, uh by the the guilds the the spirits of the 18 in the verum at least um that are that can kind of be chalked off uh, and attributed under them uh which for Aglirepts is Mercildi, uh, Clisthurt, and Silcade, uh, who rule respectively um, traveling big distances. Clisthurt uh, is interesting in terms of uh, changing day and night is often how it's framed. Uh, and then Silcade, who rules the dispensations from spirits. Uh, so thinking about, so, uh, you know, this this notion as well of looking at the the name and the different uh, derivations of the name at, Aglia Raptor, uh, Aglia Raptor, or Agla Raptor, sometimes as well. Um, there's often implied a, a sense of wings uh, going on here, and uh, the that they all seem to be about movement and movement through things, uh, and movement through landscapes. We're we're back a little bit again to Conjunctio. I feel um, certainly they 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 strike me as somewhat of a ranger's guild, right? Milsildi helping you travel distances. Uh, Clisthurt helping you with timing of, of of day or night and being seen or not seen as well, and then Silcade dispensation from spirits as you pass through their uh, their their sacred sites. Can you speak a little to the relationship with Alalaga? Uh Yeah, sure. Uh, so Glirat and Takimaki uh, are often attributed to rule uh, Elalagap, um, and Elalagap we find uh, Elalagaf Teriel uh, always got the tongue so very eloquent yeah they're, they're, they're lovely aren't they um, the, the sound of bubbling water itself it's mentioned as a uh, a distinction a, 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 a an exception that proves the role uh, an extra bit of bureaucracy that we have this nice neat three, de- three chiefs six deputies um, a, a free agent uh, in this form of Skerlin slash Sirak, uh, who may be one of the deputies, maybe something different. Then these 18 spirits, they get chunked off into threes under them. But then also some of them, like Putsantanakia, have second lines, uh, as does uh, Neberos. 
with the with the eight under them. But then you also get like, oh, and also there's this other thing, which is that uh, Tokimiki and, and Aglia Reps also rule over Elelagap, who is the, uh, the spirit that rules waters. Uh, and that we find Garp turns up in a bunch of different contexts, uh, very gregarious uh, character cropping up a variety of spirit lists, usually under uh, a variety of different names, but commonly around water, transportation, um, sometimes illusion, but generally more about um, uh, movement and water. Uh, consecration can uh, make uh, love and hate crucial, which again uh, is is interesting to me in terms of the the humoral thermodynamics of inducing love and hate, that if you can do one, you can do the other. Oh, the, the two the two toad bones uh, the matching ones in either side of the of the toad uh, yeah and so there's this 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 sense that Elagap doesn't quite fit under anyone but has this dual rulership who is the only spirit who is said to have two deputies um most of the time uh, we're pretty clear that it might we might have different manuscripts but we don't have this notion that a, a subordinate would have two reporting managers I, what what interests me is where the second of Lucifer's deputies, um, if we're going to think about um, how this might relate to talking about Kimbanda counterparts and the use of um, the the Grimorian Verum's um, hierarchical structure, is in the fact that Putsatanakia as the second of of Lucifer's deputies has a second line, which which I call the Professors Guild, which are all spirits that teach magic. Um, uh, Heramail teaching the power of herbs, Sustugriel giving good mandrakes or good familiars, uh, Trimasail teaching the making of oils and the powders of projection, uh, Sergothi, who we've talked about previously, uh, giving something around a social engineering, like working uh, people uh, in some way, uh, and specifically women and sometimes children. And that interests me in terms of Introducing this notion that we may be talking about tutelary spirits again, we may be talking about dead magicians again, and that this interests me in terms of what I understand uh, and what I'm interested in. Take a shot every time Al says that. I just ring a little bell. Um, That interests me in terms of Mangera's relationship to ancestry and ancestors, and you know the 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 yellow fruiting sons of those um, those delicious fruits. I mean, Mangueira is interesting because, I mean, you have a, of a, of a, a Katiso, a spirit of a tree, specifically. Mm. Very, I mean, Mangueira means mango tree, not just a fruit. And right. it's also a fruit that's foreign to Brazil originally. Mangoes come from Asia. Of course, in pre flood times, they were everywhere. <laughs> uh, but I think Mangueira cannot be separated from Marabo too much um i mean he has mm. his own independent origin you made me think about this when you were talking about tutelary spirits or teaching spirits in the sense that i mean one of the hallmarks of kimanda is that if they're your personal they're teaching you everything like that's right if it is the, the the spirit that you walk with they become a teaching spirit by by their nature they may not necessarily be one for everyone um and and mangere is considered an extremely stable aristocratic issue um the in the sense that, and, and you can see this just in the fact that a tree has roots and, and bears fruit. And, and he tends to talk less than, than Marabu, but I think uh, it's helpful to understand him as, uh, yes, a teaching spirit, one that can be gotten to for to explain the situations you find yourself in. In my own uh, understanding of the relationship between Marabu and Mangueira, that, that Marabu articulates him and um, Mangueira. Uh, 
I guess, ruminates or allows for the possibility of rumination. It's the start of discussion and the start of, um, there's even a shade here, dare I imply, of writing things down. Uh, so because if Marabo articulates and, and Mangueira becomes the, the note taker, the thing that, that plants the seed. Um, and there, so there's, a, there's a, an influx here that, that shows the relationship even between, you know, the source of light and lamp black that we, I've talked about with, with Menoichi in the past. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that there's something there, too, of um, that the, the seed that comes from light must be put into darkness in order to be born. It must germinate. Most seeds do not surface germinate. Um, so it needs to go into the darkness, um, which is Mangeta's job. So it's an interesting thing of taking that seed of light and that articulation and then allowing it to germinate, to ruminate, to become something more mature than just its previous articulation. And it's mm. a very heady thing. I mean, what has he gone to very heavily um, uh, for Enkimanda, like small favors? He's very good at turning fortune around. Um, he being recognized, being um, uh, to gain prosperity, material success, um, attraction, uh, definitely that. Uh, yeah, he's he's notedly uh, mustachioed issue um as uh and and is known for twirling his mustache in, in in some houses when he comes down in possession whether the mount has one or not um and does uh is swashbuckling he has a sword um and is often uh said to be uh another synchronization there in some ways as uh Mist- Mist- mephistopheles there we go right uh, Bless I, you. yes sync um <laughs> So I think there's something really interesting there about the nature of pacts and the pact as a germination element mm. that we sign based upon the needs of what are in the light, but the pact itself must be gone over very carefully. And so I think that there's a hint here in a relationship to other issues and um, when you're dealing with things like Capapreta and the, the, the cape of ink that you now find yourself under, that um, this Mephistopheles uh, Faustian complex, right, of like, what is it that you're signing? Mm-hmm. Uh, which ties into the nature of sacrifice that we're talking about and perhaps reflects the conjunctio very well. And, and, and what's interesting about the figure of conjunctio is it looks like a tree to me, um, which I've always... Yes, in the way the branches and, the branches and the... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they, they reflect each other hourglassily. Yeah. And so there's something very interesting there because the, the fruits of the mango, which the tree itself is palmate, it goes out in many little tiny um, expressions of it. So it, it's got like a little hand of leaves every so often. And plus the mango itself, they're very prominent. They look like giant testicles hanging down mm-hmm. um they're not a subtle fruit and they're usually covering the tree in large amounts so it's uh it also has a strange i like the relationship with the mango just that it's it's a citrus but it's grainy like a pear um mm. like it has that kind of citrusy boost it's not a citrus fruit but i mean it has that kind of brighter fruit flavor and uh the the pit is not horribly defined there's a point where it's too hard but there's a point where it's like mm. a boundary in the middle of it like, like it just it isn't stone fruit you can't just like you can't just like easily uh yeah uh, like get uh excavate that yeah it's 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 a fibrous uh point at which it's gone from eatable flesh to non-eatable flesh yes and that mm. beautiful yellowish orangish reddish that starts off green but you know, this invocation of the sun that is underground, that yellow sun that is the ancestral sun mm. being brought forth. So that which we, we take from today's world, bury, comes back again. So there's this natural ancestral thing of like if it's written word and then the nature of the dead 
um, the things that we learned in yesteryear come back to fruition. Mm. Uh, it allows for the next column of working to be done through through the goat Eshu and through his deputies and all the way to the King of the Seven Crossroads. And, you know, it is side of it that I think Mangeta comes down to secure the temple, to cleanse it very powerfully, to oversee initiations and pacts. Um, he's not as commonly a mount as, say, Marabo, um, who is very gregarious and very outspoken, whereas Mangeta tends to be quieter. But they are very similar. And I, I think if it weren't for the fact that you don't usually see Marabo twirling his mustache or stroking his invisible beard as hmm. much, they would act very similar to each other. Uh, in my experience, uh, generally, I've seen Mangeta stand up more than Marabo, who, who's typically hunched over, but that doesn't mean that Mangeta doesn't come hunched over. Hmm. Um, but those details are different between each groups, whether and, and seeing him, I've seen Mangeta come down in Kondoble temples uh, and Umbanda temples. Uh, rare, uh, I've seen Marabo come down more in uh, Kondoble and Kimbanda, like groups that call themselves Kimbanda primarily. Hmm. Um, but uh, not that that's just my experience on who I've seen. There's 44,000 registered tejidos in Sao Paulo alone. So it's, like, you know, it's not like I want to have seen a, a, a survey to represent all of any of these children. With the hourglass sort of notion of conjunctio, I was wondering, like, uh, but the temporality of it, right? You know, you've mentioned before with Marabo um, sort of voicing the devil, the first manifestation of Kala, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have this eloquent articulation that happens, but to to work, you know, it passes through the mango tree and, and the roots put in the soil, which is the temporality, right? You know, like putting it into, into the now. It's quite fascinating, the dynamic. Um that occurs there when the notion of like all this, like what the, the the branches that receive sunlight, but then the roots that, you know, penetrate into the soil and, and feed it and nourish it and are nourished by it. Yeah. Again, we're back to that core thing that we tend to circle around when we're talking about a lot of folk necromantic stuff that, uh, you know, the good, the good tree, the good solid trunk has both roots that stretch into the, the hummus of that, which came before and, uh, you know, branching, reaching blossoms um, that uh, experience the sun in new ways and, uh, uh, and, and further crown it. I mean, in, in these episodes that are somewhat slightly designed, it's interesting to when the things that I don't remember designing fit together. Like, I really do think there's some interesting noddings between the Witch of Endor and Mangeta. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the nature of the tour, which, of course, it floods Kimbamba in many ways. You know, to revisit the, the Bizuar briefly there, I, I think... Um, it's an, it's, a, it's an interesting consideration because it is a rock not of natural, um, I mean, it's natural in its its creation, but considered unnatural in its frequency in that way, I guess, of like, it's right. not a desired thing unless you're a, a, a Bezor hunter, of which right. there are many websites that you can go to that, of course, claim to be selling many, many Bezors. Like uh, the, the centipede stone is a huge one in China, right? Wow. The Bezor that in Indonesian Bezors websites. Oh, it's, uh, it's intense because of the 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 Muslim influence there, right? Mm-hmm. So it, the Indonesian ones are, are huge. Uh, horse chokes, for instance, uh, which is uh, in the esophagus. Um, there's different ones, different styles of bezoars that are formed. There could be the the food bolus ones that you get from um, like uh, cow cud balls, which are really, they're like a bezoar, but they're not because it's just hardened food that, that comes up. And it's, you know, these cud chewing animals that are, the food is going from stomach chamber to stomach chamber to stomach chamber. The... Human formed uh, lactobezoar. I had a friend whose baby had a lactobezoar, which is uh, ooh, that's uh, fun. Uh, weird milk that's solidified um, in the body. Um, uh, 
you also see uh, uh, ones that are formed from medication that's not properly entering into the system. Um, so then you talk about it like, well, if you know the animal or the person has a reaction, could you create your own bezoars? Um, you know, there's right. the, the trico bezoar, which is the, the normal hairball ones that get very, you know, this classic uh, bezoars there. Right. Phyto bezoar as well, right? They're, yes. they're often, those are interchangeable terms sometimes uh, from what I gather. Cellulose. Uh, yeah. With that type of thing. Uh, Diospyro bezoar. I, I don't know. We're not going to know. Sorry. From uh, unripe persimmons specifically. And the Coca-Cola is a remedy. I mean, that's just fascinating. <laughs> what? Uh, yeah. Uh, what? Yeah, it's a specific type of, of phytobezoar formed from unripe persimmons, and then Coca-Cola helps dissolve it. Because, you know, you can put a nail in Coca-Cola. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. That shows yeah. you how powerful our stomachs are that we can contain it. Um, Who would have thought that cocaine wine could be so bad for you? Uh, not me. I mean, that's good shit. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, it seems to be definitely, I mean, uh, extensive, like the Picatrix is like the bezoar. It loves its bezoar tech. Yeah, bezoar references. yeah. It, it seems to be the word, in, in fact, just means uh, antidote, right? And it, it, that it, which that which expels. I've heard it uh, as pad as well, um, expeller of poison, so less counter poison or antidote, and literally that which gets pushed out because it yeah. itself is also pushed out. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, another kind of pellery. Hmm. Fascinating with it how it itself collects things and residue forms and then eventually you know is leaving but like yes, that, that's super yes. that's super fascinating is like this because we talked a bit before with the bones right you know and like how they can take on other qualities you can name them to be someone else you mm-hmm. know or you can transfer their properties you yeah. know of like the, the, this one person who was cursed and now i'm going to use their bones to curse someone else you know and so it's fascinating that it, it what pushes out the poison yes um, i believe you're referring to the persian uh word right you know is mm-hmm. ends up becoming the instead of this thing that just neutralizes it in a way it literally like forces it out like be gone <laughs> yeah and that the blockage in being yeah. pushed out forms the means of cleansing everything yeah. else that was in the way of the passage right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think it's interesting to that notion of what antidote is because certainly antidote can include purgatives like mm-hmm. consider the universal antidote because it just makes you vomit everything right but but we do have this idea of, of, of neutralization through antidote of like, mm-hmm. oh, it chemical counteracts it right. and, and, and nullifies it in that way, which is also uh, quite interesting that there's, mm-hmm. there's a counterpart, a, a god and an anti-god. Yeah, poison law gets weird in terms of humoral theory because for a long time there are many poisons that didn't seem to operate by any consistent manifest quality. It didn't seem to always make you hotter or colder or drier or moister or, or part of the body like that. And so they, they often got classed with the non-manifest qualities, which are uh, exactly as tautological as, uh, you know, Ben Johnson uh, criticizes them to be, you know, why does this poison make someone sleepy? Well, because it has dormitive virtues, right? It's, it's, it's circular, right? But those were, those were how uh, our Aristotelian scholasticists had to uh, approach a lot of poisons. Uh, and so an awful lot of like very particular exceptions uh, are, are built up in the, in the law of, um, the European occult philosophy of, of, of poison. I also really love the the history and tie into caveat emptor, which yes. uh, is over a fraudulent bezoar case, and it's and it's your people again. It's a common law of England, um, sixteen. It's your period at that sixteen hundreds, early sixteen hundreds. Mm-hmm. Um, rule announces the rule of caveat emptor to make sure that you're, it's it's up to you, uh, buyer person. So it, it reminds me of those Indonesian bezoar sites. Of like, how do I know what you're selling me? Is really like the third bezoar to be extracted under the new moon of a horse. Or the ones that come from like 
dragons even and like mm. reflect and they're like weird and like translucent and and look like glowy balls <laughs> yeah they, they, they they're that's often like oh we've heard of this other one it's not like the one we have but like yeah mm-hmm. it's 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 like see-through and it kind of glows yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah it's more like a glass or something mm-hmm. yeah and it makes me just think of like the demand you know uh for something that becomes like the hot topic in, in, in magic or in whatever yes. curative thing that you're doing with it you know is like well we gotta have the tech that you guys don't have right you yeah know? so it becomes this thing of like well well you, you guys you guys have it from this animal well i, well, I got it from mm-hmm. you know this deva you know, whatever <laughs> right it's also such an exoticized uh medicine anyway you know mm-hmm. uh that it, it, it it's it's comes to prominence in europe as, as far as i can tell from a bunch of people deciding it's worth looking at all of these Arabic uh, physicians and, and and philosophers and and, and occultists, mm-hmm. uh, all seemingly talking about how great it is. Uh, and so it's you know it, it's it's again the um, if you know the the magpie eyes of uh, the pragmatic healer and and magician. Well, if it's great, then I want to have five of them. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, that'll be nothing compared to my five thousand. Uh, <laughs> next week the uh, next episode the folk catholic uses of the virgin mary's bezoar would <laughs> actually um, be a really wonderful pamphlet to write um, yeah i just i find that again the, the bezoar and conjunctio like the two the 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 space that is now occluded in the center especially the throat is closed and therefore the the, the stomach right or the heart or the heart depending on which Thing you're going there that the it, it it enters but it has no can it be passed through I don't know it's interesting that conjunctio starts to echo the the notion of a bezoar in a way that uh, Carco cannot the little um, choke point in the middle and, and and again like that which is in terms of like uh the the kind of conversations we've had about you know epistemology and 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 and, and knowledge and and language and things that which can be consumed and 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 chewed but but never digested necessarily you know the gristle of meaning. Right, that which can can only be passed, uh, uh, then, and then you get into the uh, Tibetan thing of where some of the sutras come from that they cannot be understood in the current time that you pass them, or perhaps even Masonic references of like that, and, and the hope that may, maybe in future generations, right, it will come <laughs> to light, or that that we will be ready for this sutra because it was buried in a treasure chest under a mm-hmm. uh, island guarded by a, a, a yeti and his bride. Like, do you replant the mango to bear and make it bear fruit again? Mm. Uh, the, the mango seeds in the pocket allow for them to be planted anywhere in the future, but the one here now actually has mangoes. Yes. Huh. And then we talked about sacrifice and just the, I love the idea of like something being trapped, you know, the air cannot pass through the throat in the same way or that thing's going to be digested in the same way because of the bezoar being lodged in there, you know, yeah. so that right. the, the breast that cannot be expressed, that it's being caught in the thing that now becomes this coagulated, you know, built upon stone and you know what is what what is it hiding? What are the generations of the folds of the rings of the tree or whatever that's in the bezoar? You know, that, oh. and then come with it. The, the concretions themselves yeah. are a kind of yeah, uh, the, tree the, ring. It's like that's when, beautiful. Thank you. It's like when you you know when you hold back and you can't say something. You know what is swallowed, right? What the spit that returns down? You know the oh. things that are unspoken and little ghosts of those things. I just I was thinking about the idea of the bezoar lodged in, in you know the esophagus or whatever. You know, the pa- and the how it must be around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the patina yeah. around the frog in the throat. Ah. Yeah. Oh, I like that very much, Kat. <laughs> and of course, like uh, thinking, I was thinking, uh, looking at how frogs uh, in medieval heraldry are uh, distinct from toads, which are, which we talked about before, being you know beautifully grumpy, hateful creatures um, that want to to spit the the venom of melancholy and choler 
uh, at humanity. Frogs, uh, on the other hand, are mainly known for their uh, the loudness at which uh, they court and mate, uh, and so they're uh, they're 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 a loud sex animal. So there's uh, again there's a, there's an importance of the throat, uh, and yeah, if we're if we're if we're looking at it conjunctio, uh, definitely fucks. Uh, albeit as, as ships passing in the night and knocking boots of uh, itchy feet rather than holding hands in marital union. And on a sex gag. Excellent. <laughs> the notion of pearls before swine comes in there too. It's just pearl, obviously not a, a, a bezoar in the same way, but still a bezoar. Um, and one that, you know, the what do you hold on to and what can be allowed to ruminate further so that it becomes perfected. Um, when knowing when to speak, um, yeah, and certainly within the context of the the pythoness of of Endor and this the serpent speech that she elaborates of like when do you speak and what does it do to speak what does it do to to tell people what what they what they ask for is it what mm-hmm. they need and mm-hmm. you know that editing process is of course interesting to me and it's something that I think Mangeta is is concerned with as well um, and Datura and this this notion of of always you do not you enter the unknown with with mama verde um it's going to be a walk in her domain not yours mm-hmm. and that that side of it is is there there will be an intersection of something but which side of the crossroads you find yourself on the next day is not up to you <laughs> uh, at least not with something like the torah perhaps it is more with some of the other things we discussed mm. that notion of like contemplation is really fascinating in terms of looking at the the four main uh, means of using Bezoa that are identified. There's, uh, there's touching it. Um, there's carrying it. Uh, there's, there's obviously crushing it up and drinking it, which starts to take on more pharmacological uses. But then there's also, um, a big tradition of regarding it, of looking at it being, and, 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 you know, examining it being itself a way of that is part of its medicine as well. That's part of its, its virtue to, to affect things as well. That contemplating the thing is part of the thing. Oh, just mm-hmm. like imagining the thing is almost like doing the thing. It's all... I, I don't know about that. No, I think it, I, I think it's less like, oh, you can have an image of it and that'll do the job. Uh, I think it's more that just sitting and staring at it. You still need the actual bezoa, right? Uh, but the, the idea of like regarding it, not thinking about it, but but meditating on it in front of you. It was well, also said to be a, a From, a, from an allyship model that if you truly meet the bezoa, you will never have to have it physically again. You know that, like that's that's part of plant medicine is that meeting the plant means that you do not necessarily physically need the plant ever again. That you know how to call its medicine. Mm. The point of making allies, right? That they'll come when you call, right? Uh, which is an interesting side of things too. That I wonder about that, like how much our materialistic framework inhibits our magic in that way. Um, mm. And the battle with like, can you grab a bunch of ingredients and put them into a jar and put oil over them and say like, look at all these rare things that are in this thing. Well, sure, but how did it get animated? And what is the unifying principle? What's the general in there that's telling those things how to operate in proportion? Mm-hmm. Like, what's its motor as opposed to what's its constituent parts? You know, this, 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 blender, but you don't necessarily, you're not creating life by, by duplicating it. Right. Yeah, this yeah. also speaks to me of uh, the lodging of medicines in a body as well, like the, the bezoar of what do we, when, when do we um, augment ourselves? When are, when are like, you know, uh, when does the, the 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 stone that gets put in us so that we can do magic or the the witch soul that's added to us or the animal part that's added to us along with what's taken away what gets lodged in us and slowly you know concretes 
layers and patinas around it. Like what, what, what do we carry inside us? Uh, to be able to to reach in and get those things. Yeah, and it's so great that you bring that up because I was just thinking with uh, the whole discussion earlier about you know the parts of the soul that are taken away and some shredded to ribbons and, and interwoven with new things, including plants and animals. You know, and mm-hmm. uh, the traditions I'm familiar with, you know, the witch then can assume the shape of that animal whenever she wishes in, in spirit form or whatever. You know, she can also call those animals when they're around her and 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 so on. But the plants, you know, its song is learned and it can be sung, and and, and now that it's there essentially in the magic. You know, it's that that plant can now through her body intervene in the whatever magic that she's wielding because it, she can grasp and, and, and strangle things like it's vines or you know she knows how to make things act in the way that the plant acts upon the world you know same with the animals that are in her or if she has a different ally like a, a dragon or a fairy you know these things will uh, are part of the magic so there's nothing that you know even if it's not like technically quote unquote well this is not something that's very in my in, in my experience like thought of in this way but if it's not like her brand of witchcraft it all is it, it all becomes kind of carnivorously consumed right. and sort of and and this weird frankensteinian way you know you get it's like it's all now her magic like even when she's not like calling her fear, fairy like vila mm. or hers my like it's always like the claws are always there you know because it's part of her lifeblood now right and so as a result then you know like do you uh, you know the question is like what happens when you live apart from your materials you know it's like well you you're a witch even when you're in prison you know when right. you're stripped away from all of your fancy tools you know uh you know which in, in the Balkan context are usually kitchen supplies you know right. um, the knife that you also happen to use for other things you know or in some cases there's ones that are buried and not used for, um, but you know it's it's like the scythe or the um, sickle that's you know like um taking over people's heads so they're cleared of certain things and possessing influences you know mm. like when you're away from all of them where's your power for the witch it's it's in it's already in her right you know so she has all her allies with her at all times and it affects every magic that she does whereas you know the the human hand which which reads the book and makes spirit packs you know and is changed by those things certainly you know and every act of rereading the the book you know and so on and then re-engaging those contacts like at the end of the day it's like the the, the witch's hand is also scaly and furry and and vine like you know because it comes with those packs that were made and those things act the way that she acts now she's part of them not quite them but you know uh, so you don't need to plant anymore in a sense i don't dance oh great (laughs) i love it Uh, that's the mic drop (laughs) you remind me of uh something i was just discussing in the baraja española class that was Oftentimes when you give a deck to a spirit to work with, um, there's this ownership that happens in the West with cards, right? That that's my tarot deck. Mm. Uh, Parsons' tarot decks were rare, but when you're a playing card reader, playing cards are very easy to get. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Baraja Española is, is Spanish playing cards. Uh, if I were to give one to a spirit and literally they have the deck, that means that they have access to any deck that I use from that point on if I've introduced them to that deck properly mm. because they have theirs. And so they can simultaneously be linked to any deck that I use, um, which is a different thing than always borrowing their deck to do readings as if they have the exclusive ownership of it, as opposed to empowering your ownership of it, mm-hmm. right? which is a different thing. So the idea that if you give a, a ladder to Ogun because you, you were told to in a reading or you really want to or whatever this is, and you know Ogun has a ladder, but could you then uh, think about that every time you're climbing a ladder or doing mm-hmm. something? Could that be a way to draw it back to you in that way? It, it's the it's the act of giving that deck, not the object of the deck. Yeah, or at least a marriage of the two in some mm. way. Um, because the giving of the deck is important. The giving of a physical deck is important. The giving of a small ladder to Ogun might then give you access to larger ladders in life that are both metaphorical and physical, whether it's social up, you know, 
going through the social ladders or, or because you work on ladders constantly, you know, you're not going to give him your 80 foot ladder that you use for your job. Um, but you, you might in some way give it to him, give it over to him, perhaps. I don't know. It just raises those interesting possibilities of how we can interact, like the, the preciousness or the notion of separating too many tool sets of like, you know, there's a, there's a hammer in Ogun's tools, but like, there are people that keep a physical hammer, the house's hammer in his pot. And when they need to use a hammer, they pull it out of his pot and use mm. it. This is the, the, the constant, uh, was a, was a hotbed of conversation in the Yahoo groups in the late nineties for sure of like, can the Athame ever actually cut things? And there was the tradition of it being the Athame, the blood letter, which Chumley promoted very heavily in, uh, his, uh, glossary in Kutlup, uh, which was the first time I think many people saw that in print, uh, through his, his explication of that. But then the people that said, I only have one knife and it cuts when I want it to cut and it doesn't cut when I want it to, doesn't, don't want it to cut, yeah. um, versus the, the bloodletting knife versus the knife that is utilitarian, uh, which seems to be more of the, the kind of Wiccan division versus the, the, the black hilted and the white hilted knife of, of Solomonic Grimoire. Mm-hmm. Um, just these notions of things of, of one of the markers of traditional craft in its, 90s incarnation and early 2000s was the utilitarian notion of like it's a knife and i'm telling you that this is a knife i'm using right now mm-hmm. the, um the the tools had practical virtue that there was not this secreting away of every ritual tool there might be a a, a way to call it but it was consecration through use mm. and intent not necessarily yes. mm-hmm. prayer and intent or consecration and special thing it was it was it was empowered to do its job to cut a knife wants to cut yeah which which shortcuts a lot of the problems that you have with lodge-based consecrations of tools in that you need tools you need one tool to consecrate the other tool but you need the other tool to consecrate the other tool and so you have to like try and work out a way of bootstrapping itself Hmm? if you had contact with the original lodge (laughs) but you're a folk lodge you see Mm -hmm. Ah. Mm -hmm. oh well that that just went darker than (laughs) <laughs> and i will still call myself a full catholic um but uh it's uh it's something interesting there i um we have been told that sometimes these episodes are dense and um i would like to claim any uh culpability for for making them dense and not put that on katarina who is just full of amazing information i wish she'd talk all day, every day. And I think we'll have her back for another episode very soon. Yes. Oh, Aww, thank you. So thank you so much for contributing. But I think it is uh, a, a time in the program for a new section that we've never really done before, Al. Um, oh, yeah? Uh, yes, I was going to ask both of you and then maybe myself, um, what's going on in the next few months for you? Is there anything you'd like to promote? Um, you know, I uh, this the goal of this podcast has never been to be like, buy this thing and do this thing. And I wrote these things, but like, I also know that a lot of people are very interested in those things. And I know that both of you have perhaps things that you want to talk about and are, have published something that where could people do those things of publishing and recognizing you and validating you on Instagram. <laughs> uh, it's at Grimoire's on tape, at Grimoire's on tape, at Grimoire's on tape. Just once. Love me. Uh, thanks. No, uh, I have uh, the, the the only thing I, I um uh, that the, the jumps to mind is uh, uh, the in in just under two weeks I'll be doing another round of my Gifts of the Magi webinar course, which is uh, three classes um, again offered through those handsome chaps at Wolf and Goat. Um, <laughs> And we'll be talking about Magian, um, medieval, early modern, and modern cultists, uh, and how to be doing the magics of uh, safe travel and and, and uh, detection and conjuring spirits uh, under the 
patronage of the, the three holy kings of Cologne. Uh, and that's starting on the 5th of December. Um, so hopefully, uh, yeah, and if folks are interested. Have a, another round of the foundation course, Geomancy, starting, I believe, in January. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, also uh, super at the, the top of the of the year. I think it's the 7th or the 8th. Let me let me check that. Um, but yes, I'm very excited to to do another round of that. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, I'm, uh, I, I, I quite like talking about geomancy. Uh, you, you may not know that about me. It's the, it's Thursday 9th of January. That'll start. Um, and I'm announce it publicly just so I pressure him into it, that I've recently said that he needs to do a, a Cunningman course and there are, we've talked over drinks, um, quite extensively about what that might look like. And I'm really excited that that is a possibility, perhaps not the next few months, but sooner rather than later in the, yeah. the wheel. Yeah. Of yeah. The- Something on looking at what cunning craft was and passing out when it's a tradition and when it's a set of practices by the folk called cunning uh, and those kinds of things and what that means in a modern context, as well as, you know, going through a, a bunch of historical uh, material and looking at how That's we can exciting. apply that. Yeah. Um, is coming up too? Yes. Uh, December 12th. I'm talking about uh, a practical syllabus of early modern uh, necromancy um, based off uh uh, uh, a passage in um, <laughs> Thomas Blatt's Glossographia, which is a dictionary of, of weird words, but he gives rather than just saying, "Oh, it's uh, it's a, it's a bad magician" or "it's someone who uh, conjures the dead," he gives this incredibly detailed syllabus of like it's a person who wears black and goes hungry and lodges amongst graves and uh, incubates dreams to meet the devil or to meet a dead person or the devil in the shape of a dead person and uses these incenses and these sacred words and these bits and pieces, and so drawing all that together as a hit list of like, Oh, uh, you know, um, this is, this is, this actually looks like some kind of set of practices, um, that are consistent and we could form a syllabus around. And that's also me playtesting uh, a version of that talk that I'll end up doing at the international necromancy consortium in, in March down in, uh, NOLA. Oh, where all three of us are. We're all yes. That is when we, sh- we three shall meet again, if not sooner, I hope. Yes. Hopefully in the, in the, fog and filthy air if not before then um, or after then in physicality um but yes the international necromancy consortium's first meeting conference is in the last weekend of march i believe mm-hmm. um it's the week after the cyprian conference that, that um Ursabeth is doing mm. so uh, where and where i'll see you again hey yes oh no we'll see each other there yes oh brilliant nice one. So it's two weekends in a row what will we yeah. do? Uh, <laughs> Necromancers on tour. Awesome. Oh, remember Al needs to be shipped in a coffin of crumpets and tea. It's true. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, this is how proper British vampires maintain their British citizenship while traveling. Some of us have style. Yes. (laughs) Um, Tied in a rug of cat fur or something. Oh, yes, that must be spun on some crumpetsmas, yeah. Yes. Um, And Katharina, are are there any talks or or publications you would like to promote? Uh, I'm saying publications so that you'd be sure to grab her uh, booklet from the Hadians on Smy and uh, folklore there and uh, harass her to write more, of course. Yes, uh, I'm working on more pamphlets uh, and all sorts of other things for, for Hadian. Yeah, this my one is out if you want to learn uh, briefly about sort of dragon folklore and how it's different in Eastern Europe and um, dragon Thank marriages, you. dragon children and so on. And then uh, I'm working on someone vampires and werewolves and saints and someone i'm giving a talk in 
um, the International Necromancy Consortium in uh, NOLA on Vulcan Necromancy and folk practices around that uh, that I'm quite excited to uh, put together and share with you all. And yeah, I'm working on a course. So we'll see where it goes. But yeah, I'm, I'm planning on uh, not just talking to lovely people about things, but also writing them down, <laughs> which is its own <laughs> torturous process, you know. But yeah, so I'm really um, looking forward to publishing a lot more on just the Balkan side of things as, as I work through all the lovely new sources that I have. That's really nice. Mm-hmm. I may be doing a, a version of the Woman Clothed with the Sun in person, uh, which is... Uh, exploration into the Virgin Guadalupe's history and her use as a, as a, a font of folk magic um, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the complexity that is um, syncretism and uh, Mexican folk magic uh, during her feast days. Um, or uh, it may be just solely online. I'm not sure yet. Um, but I'll decide that very soon because it's coming up. And uh, I'll be traveling, uh, apparently, uh, with uh, Al come the new year. Uh, we will be at the not speaking, but uh, in eager anticipation of the Cyprian Conference and then followed by the International Necromancy Consortium in March, uh, where I'll be speaking on Las Animas Solas, the, as well as the singular Anima Sola, but um, the concept of Anima Sola uh, in Hispanic folk Catholicism and the, the Holy Souls of Purgatory. So um, accompanying the various um, forms in which we find Anima Sola, as well as the cult to the souls in Purgatory, uh, which is more old world, uh, and then individual purgatorian-bound souls within the new world, like Juan Minero and um, uh, Maria Benigo and others that are like that. So it's uh, a fun side to that. And I just got um, accepted to the the next year's VGS uh, happening. Okay. Till, I think I think it's July. Um, but uh, always preparing for that. So writing the stuff for that, which is focusing almost completely on uh, Santísima Muerte and the herbal lore associated with her. So. That's something you're interested in, please. Uh, the VGS is an amazing conference. Um, uh, just, uh, it's so nice to kind of be in um, a witch plant nerd camp for the weekend um, mm-hmm. and uh, be locked there and uh, see people that I've known going there for five years and continue to expand and contract and uh, uh, talk plants. Um, I love that conference because it, it, it the, the basis of it is plant nerd. And then um, most people are magical practitioners on top of that. So I, I love the place where it's um, it's, a, it's a slightly different angle in. Um, and that's really level. But that's way in the distant future. And there's hopefully many more uh, interactions and episodes and things to keep current. But these are our immediate plannings. Um, and Al has uh, further, as we mentioned earlier, has uh, the, is it pre-orders are available in December for the excellent book? Should be, yes, should yes. be, uh, either at the end of this month or by, by December. Yeah, pre-orders through Scarlet Imprint of the text uh, that my friend and colleague Phil Legard and I have been uh, putting together for a fair old while on looking at the excellent book of the Art of Magic, uh, a grimoire and the scrying record of the reception of the grimoire, um, uh, detailing some operations around 1567 um, by two operators who almost certainly Humphrey Gilbert and John Davies that precede obviously the experiments of uh, Dee and Kelly by 20 years that they, they, they all know each other as well. Um, obviously, cause like, uh, you know, British comedy and television in general, there are only, you know, nine actors that we have to share. Uh, so yeah, I'm very excited to, to get that out. And that's the, that's the text itself, which is fascinating, full of, uh, you know, tutelary shades of, uh, 
Agrippa and Depositions, uh, Agrippa and, and Roger Bacon, and uh, as well as Job and Saint Luke. Uh, Is this the text that turned you on to the importance of that? It's certainly one of the ones that solidified it as something that wasn't just uh, uh, an idle speculation on my part. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But there's, there's, there's other aspects of it as well that are really interesting. Having just finished the, the course on the, the, the four regents or the four kings, um, Oriens et al., uh, they're in there. Uh, they play a very important role. And, and more widely, the, the system, if we want to call it that, that is explicated in the excellent book is not a particular system of magic that is, that is channeled like, uh, you know, Dee and Kelly do a couple times, depending on how many forms of things called Enochian we want to kind of, um, chunk into. Uh, but rather it's, it's a, it's a process by which, um, the operator and scryer visit the house of Solomon and, uh, through a series of operations, uh, visit the trees of blood and crystal at the center of the house that are fruiting books that one picks off the, off the vine and then brings back to the real world. So it is not just a particular set of channeled operative grimoires. It is a means by which one can channel a variety of like a, a potentially um, huge storehouse of, of systems. It's, 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 it's a, it's a, a meta channeling. Like the jewel tree of Tibet meditations. Um, it's, mm. it's lovely. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a great grimoire. And I'm really really genuinely excited for people to get to um, get stuck in with it. Uh, it's it's been a, a project I've been working on for a good while, and delighted to have, have, have got to work on it with Phil, who has done fantastic work in terms of pulling other um, contemporaneous um, operations involving Azazel um, and 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 the Four Kings and various other bits uh, that it looks similar to. So giving a context for it. Uh, and obviously delighted to be doing it with Peter and Archistus of Scarlet Imprint, um, who are dear pals as well as, um, you know, uh, very gifted and determined magicians in their own right. Lovely. Um, well, I think that that's probably a good place to end. And um, thank you to to Katarina for, for always uh, the chats, but this time recording it. Yes, thank you so much. You make us sound... Thanks for having me. You make us sound so much smarter. Oh, thanks <laughs> um, so much for having me. Of course. Uh, made me the first of many. And mm. uh, thank you all for listening. And I uh, hope this finds you well. We hope to record another episode soon. But mm. uh, may uh, a happy posthumous, because we're recording it after the fact, posthumous mm. feast of the Holy Relics. Um, and um, may your bezoars find uh, fruition and uh, expansion of your knowledge as opposed to just getting stuck in your throat and uh yes uh, feel free to help out anytime al mm-hmm. um may, may all your mango trees uh not drop mangoes on your head but rather in your bellies mm-hmm. uh, and uh the witch of endor is awesome so <laughs> <laughs> all hail orb whatever it is right right yeah and, uh if you are running through the forest being chased by a woman in a green dress with galloping plant tendrils chasing after you like hellhound, you probably <laughs> overdosed on the Tura. <laughs> apologize to her and it will all be okay. Stop, drop, and roll. Stop, drop, and pray. <laughs> so, Unless you went there willingly to be transmogrified into something inhuman. Mm-hmm. Exactly. If, 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 if you are going to give up your humanity, may it be willing. Um, and if you'd like to retain it and be, be a, a sorcerer, then um, don't drink the broth <laughs> <laughs> I drink of my sisters 
<laughs> Manon, these are my gifts. <laughs> All right, loves. Um, I think that's it. I think we're good. And um, thank you so much. Glorious. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you all.